This is Leaked Lunch with Isabella Kaminska, the Fly on the Wall podcast that brings you to the dining table. In this episode, I tempt global liquidity and plumbing expert James Aitken out of his usual stomping ground in Wimbledon for some classic French cuisine at La Vacheron in Chiswick. James is the founder and managing partner of Aitken Advisors. That's a one-man macroeconomic research boutique which draws on James's plentiful experience in FX and rates at UBS and AIG Trading. James is probably best known for having raised the alert on subprime and repo congestion well before most of the world were wise to the issues in 2008. It's also fair to say that James is the definitive financial markets insider. His business consults to approximately 100 of the most influential capital pools in the world. During our lunch, we discussed what it was like to be at UBS during the peak of the financial crisis, the financial figures James is most influenced by, and of course the short and long-term impact of the mini-budget fiasco on collateral markets. The discussion was taped on October 14th, the day Quasi Kwarteng lost his job as UK Chancellor. The bill came to £382.21, mostly due to the wine choices. So, hello, James. We're, uh, I'm joined here in uh, Le Vacheron in Chizik, right. which is a French restaurant, which I, my parents have always told me about, but I've never been to. Sorry, it's a French restaurant, is it? Is it not? I'm Le Vacheron? Te- I'm teasing you. Of course it is. <laughs> I was going to say, I, I know my French is bad, but it's not that bad. Yes. Um, so, I'm joined by James Aitken, who is probably the foremost like expert on... Uh, Plumbing and liquidity in the UK these days. He has, he's the, he heads, well, your, your note, your notes from a small island has been mm. going since the uh, heady days of the 2008 crisis, right? Well, it's been going for 25 years, but I think it got attention ah. from 2006 onwards, but yes. Right. Yeah, yeah. That makes more sense. So tell me, t- t- for listeners who don't, who don't know you, <coughs> give us some background to who you are. And how you came to be a liquidity expert? Well, thanks, thanks for lunch. <laughs> this is uh, nice to get together. We've been talking about doing this for a fair while, and boy, what a moment to be having this conversation, right? Exactly. Just, just an important little caveat for our listeners is I'm very wary of anyone who claims to be a plumbing expert, right? Because as we'll get into, I had a bit of expertise and experience, which uh, turned out to be quite relevant in 07 and 08. But I'm very wary of anyone who claims to be an expert on all of this because it's very hard. It's yes. very complicated. And there's all little corners of our financial system that people working in those corners understand perfectly, but remain opaque to the rest of us. So how anyone can understand it all together, I'm not sure. So I would never claim to be an expert, but I'm always curious and trying to understand how it works. And I'm very fortunate to know an awful lot of people who work in these different corners of the financial system, whether it be policy or in the private sector. And I just never stop asking questions because I want to understand how it works as well. Yeah. And yeah. It's, it's, it's not static, it's dynamic. And um, yeah, it's hard. But look, the background is, well, first I've been in London for 23 years, which is unexpected in itself. Because you hail from, from the uh, yeah. other side, as yeah. they say. Well, listeners may be able to detect <laughs> the accent. I'm not sure. It depends on your recording here. Yeah, but, yeah, there is. But yeah, but it's... I, Australian obviously, worked in finance my entire career. My father was a fund manager uh, in Australia and a very good one. Uh, My brothers both work in finance as well, but he he never insisted that we go into finance. It just kind of happened by accident. Studied economics degree badly at the University of Sydney, ended up 
working in foreign exchange at Macquarie Bank. So yeah, 30 years, and then I won't bore your listeners with my whole lamentable sell-side career or any of that rubbish. A little flavour. A little flavour is foreign exchange first and foremost. Sent to London by uh, what was then Chase Manhattan in May 1999, which I always wanted to do. And I was doing a little bit of trading, but mostly institutional sales to risk-seeking institutions, you know, hedge funds, sovereign wealth funds, whoever. And we're trying to understand the world and, and, and figure out where it's going and then position accordingly, and, uh, endlessly challenging. And then things got interesting for me in uh, March 2002, where I started working for a company called AIG ah. Trading. Now here's something that you out of all the people I know would appreciate massively. I'd turn up at AIG Trading, uh, which was the very vanilla, simple part of AIG. It was commodities and currencies and, and very transparent. But I turned up and I noticed these two gentlemen in the trading floor. One was Bernard Connolly, who's a hero of mine, and had written The Rotten Heart of Europe, which was so prescient and so courageous. And the second was Sir Alan Walters, who was Margaret Thatcher's economic advisor. Right. And uh, Izzy, Izzy, you know, you turn up in finance, you've had a decade of experience, you're in your early 30s and you think you know a thing or two about how the world works. And then you go into your first meeting with Bernard and Sir Alan before a client and they start talking. And I realised immediately that I knew nothing about everything that mattered. Right. And it was an absolute epiphany. Here were these two gigantic men, courageous men, brilliantly read, both from very humble backgrounds. And the way they talked and the references and everything, like, my gosh, I need to try and catch up with these two guys. They were brilliant. And they, uh, Sir Alan succumbed to Parkinson's disease, but it wasn't just his stories and the controversy around Nigel Lawson and Thatcher and ERM and everything else. It was the way they both thought uh, and to this day, you know, Bernard is a mentor and a hero of mine. I think he holds the, I tease him, that he holds the world record for the longest single, single sentence right. in a research publication, but, but it's a serious <laughs> point. But it's a That's serious a point. And gigantic intellects because they read. Yeah. They read and they read and they read and I learned so much from them and I decided there and then, this is 20 years ago, yeah. that I needed to catch up. And I've still got a lot of work and a lot of reading to do. Phenomenal well, you bones. You are one of the most well-read people I know. And like your book lists that you put out are impressive. And I, yeah. I mean, are you just naturally a very speedy reader? Or, or do you, where do you find the time to read? But well, before, you, before you answer yeah, that question, yeah. should we have a look at the menu? Yes. Um, should we go for the spaghetti? Sorry, I'm too sorry. No, <laughs> at the French restaurant. Yeah. yeah um, I, two courses or one? I think we should do two. Well, I think, okay. I think we should... Um, With regular phone checks, because yeah, just yeah. so the listeners know, today is Friday, yeah. the 14th of October. Quasi Kwarteng right. has just been yeah. kicked out of uh, government. I think, so, the, I think the term is actually self-immolated. <laughs> so we're going to keep an eye every now yeah. and then. We're going to do a phone check yeah. uh, to make sure we're not missing something massive in the markets. Um, but... I suggest two courses, if yeah. that's cool. Yeah, 100%. It's a nice menu. Yep. Um, Lovely. Right. Hello. Yes. Yes, please. Izzy, you go first, please. Um, I'm going to have the um, scallops. So it's a soup, yeah? Yes, scallop soup. And then I will have the um, the, veal, uh, the filet of brill. All right. 
May I start with the velouté, please? The roast parsnip velouté, and then the uh, brill as well. Please. Oh, so we're having the same. Oh, Would sorry, you like yeah. No, it's fine. Um, yeah. I, I would love some spinach. Anything else? It doesn't come with any uh, potatoes or anything, does no it? No potatoes, no. I'll have the Dauphinois. Yeah. Thank you. We get some, we've got to get some pommes frites. Do it, do it. Pommes frites. Yeah. Yeah. Any other veggies? Okay. I said so that much. so well. Yeah. No, just carbs. Um, so that's interesting, right? You were talking to me. Yes. And I, this is an interesting insight into how our brains work in markets, right? Yeah. You're talking away. We end up ordering the same thing. I'm so absorbed in my own menu. And then I looked at my iPhone because something was bleeping at me. A client sending yeah. me something about can we chat later on, um, which is fine. And then I didn't even listen to a single thing you were saying. <laughs> right? There's a, there's a minor lesson in the perils of multitasking. Yeah, right? no, but it is. It's, it's, and it's by the way, how rude. I'm at lunch with you. I shouldn't be looking at the bleeping screens. No, no, but you there should because there is a, we're going to do the like the ritual phone check for oh, yeah. the sake of like. I'm going to turn it upside down. Let's turn it upside down. Yeah, there we go. Until. Um, but back on. But look, you the, were saying, the, you're, you're kindly saying about the reading and where I yes. get time, and I want to be very clear uh, about something. I've always liked to read, obviously. But if I was still sitting on the cell side, yeah. commuting into work every day, you know, I'd like to think I was on a book or a Kindle or something on the commute in from Wimbledon or wherever. But the facts are you don't have that luxury. No. Right? You don't have that luxury. But then the flip side of working for yourself, as, as you know now, yeah. is that you, with a little bit of discipline, you can create that space to read and sit and be still and think. And it's absolutely vital. It's absolutely vital when you're bombarded with all this it's so hard, stimulus, though. right? It's so Stimuli, hard to make that sort of, yeah. to compartmentalise and be able to do that, I find. But so I feel what, it's my responsibility to read. But you're kind of reading so your clients don't have to, right? You're doing exactly the reading it. for them. And let's just think about that for a moment. I mean, we, we all have big ideas and there's any number of people out there around the world trying to do what I do. Yeah. Thank you. The bread has arrived. Thank you. Thank you. And Izzy, there's lots and lots of people trying to do what I do. Mm. And a lot of them do it in a very show busy way, which I'm always uncomfortable with. And yeah. apparently the idea being the more you shout and use double axes on your charts and lag everything 18 months, the more <laughs> accurate you're going to be. But you know, whatever. Yeah. But for me, it's like, okay, opinions are important, but what is the problem I'm trying to solve for my clients? You know, to use the language of all the, the tech entrepreneurs, what is the problem I'm trying to solve? Exactly. And the number one problem, and you hit on it straight out of the gate, the number one problem I'm trying to solve is to help massively time-constrained investors think. Massively time-constrained. I mean whether it be a small portfolio or a large portfolio, it doesn't matter on the mandate. These people, if they're, if they're lucky on any given day, even now through all this turbulence here in the UK, even now if these gigantic fund managers or even small fund managers get an hour a day just to sit, to read and to think, they're doing really well. Exactly. And, and my job and my challenge is to distill what I believe is essential for them. And has to be a little bit of subjectivity to it. I read all the reference material, I throw in reference to books as well, or, or historical data or evidence, or whatever, and just keep helping them think about what's important, thereby helping them think about investment decisions that have to be made. And too many fund managers are overwhelmed by distractions. 
I mean, look, you're a fund manager. You have to do marketing. You have to travel. You have to go to India to look at XYZ FinTech. It goes with the territory. And, and let's not forget, it's a very well remunerated occupation, right? Right. That's not going to change. So it's not to whinge or complain, it's just to deal with the reality that there's a lot of things happening. And this is before, and you and I have talked about this a lot, you get into the nonsense of diversity and inclusion trading, you have an offside about microaggressions, um, and then you have to discuss firm-wide trigger event policy. Now, what that's actually got to do with managing a portfolio of levered gilts or linkers, I'm not entirely sure. Yeah. But to just emphasise the point, I'm trying to help immensely time-constrained people think about what I believe to be important with all the reference material, and obviously a ton of reading is essential to that. And I think that's the key thing. It's um, it's, it's it's a trust relationship because right. your clients are trusting your brain to um, yeah. to be able to scan those things and pick right. out the things that are important because that is anyone can do the reading. That's right. But it's about who can actually pick out the details that then get framed into the bigger picture in a way that can help you make actionable decisions in the markets. But that's it, and I know it's a bit of a cliche, but I think it's important, especially now. It's not about having the answers, it's about asking the right questions. And we'll 100%. get into the weeds of some of this LDI stuff, which, let's be frank, was hiding in plain sight yeah. for 20 years. Yeah. And we'll come back to that. But it's trying to interrogate, ask questions, ask questions. And you know, I think it was, um, correct me here, but I'm pretty sure it was Tetlock in that marvellous, marvellous book, Super Forecasting, which came out in 2015, okay. Philip Tetlock. And prior to that, he'd written that brilliant book, Expert Political Judgment. I haven't read it. Right. <laughs> See, I'm right not as well your, as you. I tell you, it's, it's right in your wheelhouse because mm. it's what you do as well. Okay. And one of the lessons I took away from Tetlock's marvellous book, Super Forecasting, was if you're trying to answer a big question, break it down into a series of smaller questions to get you closer to the answer. Mm -hmm. Or at least improve the odds that you will get closer to the answer. And that's brilliant. And I think that implies it spades in finance as well. And by the way, you don't always have to have the answer. In finance and investing, in decision making, in finance and investing, think about markets. Being able to say, I don't know, yeah. is absolutely okay. And, and, and actually so brave, I, I think, yeah, sometimes. Yeah. It takes a bit of courage with people expecting everyone to have an opinion, right? Exactly. And um, so I think nearly always when you're thinking about big challenges in economics, finance, investing, liquidity, we can go down the list. Nearly always the best answer to any question is, it depends. Or, I don't know, but here's how I think about it. Yeah, right? absolutely. Yeah. And, and again, I'm, I'm not going to tell some of the extraordinary investors I work with and how lucky am I to work with them. I'm not going to tell them what to do mm. unless it's absolutely necessary. And believe me, there's been a few occasions over the past few years when it's been absolutely necessary. Do that now. Yeah. Do that now. For example, these past three weeks, buy linkers. And everyone's like, what? And I'm like, buy linkers, anyway. But, but Izzy, it's to, before even one formulates an opinion, mm. it's like, well, what's the challenge? What's the conundrum? What's the question? How do I go about tackling it? And again, I can't emphasize enough, 
you know, you, you and I turn on financial Twitter every day or the FT or everything. It's just opinion, opinion, opinion. And so much of it is just blather, absolute blather. And, and just to finish this point, one of the best pieces of advice I got from any client was a sovereign wealth fund client who said to me, he's a good friend, uh, seven years ago, he said, look, everyone can do the what. Everyone can describe what is happening, provide a narrative. But where you add tremendous value is following up with a so what and a now what. And that's brilliant, brilliant advice. And the so what, okay, here's what's happening. Well, so what? What does it mean for me? How might I wish to think about it? Provide the evidence, the reference material and so forth. All right, now what? What do I do about it? And there's actually not two answers, there's three. The first answer is sell that. The second answer is buy that. And the third answer is the most important one. Don't worry about it, <laughs> right? And it's that don't worry about it yeah. that might be the most important thing to consider, especially now. So yeah. everyone's fired up about X, Y, Z. Everyone's worried about that. Everyone's worked up. Everyone's in the ladder. Yeah, but it doesn't matter. Right. I think that, that is, yeah, because I definitely get myself into a panic sometimes because, and talking people back off the cliff is yeah. really important. Yeah, I think it's hugely important because I think part of the service you've long provided yeah, is perspective. Is perspective. Mm. I mean, I think about the, the courage of so many of your Alphaville columns basically saying, and it was all from the perspective, I think this is really important. Yeah. And you know, our brilliant, brilliant friend Man Moen oh, at yeah. the IMF, Man Moen Singh, who is, you know, just hysterically funny and enthusiastic. Mm-hmm. It's all collateral all the time for Man Moen, and he's largely right. And he's brilliant. But it's all from the perspective hey, we think this matters, it's important, we're going to write it up in a way that's engaging and help you understand it when no one else has bobbed. And that's what you did. Right. Especially the esoteric parts of the market, but that's, um, it always um, surprises me that people aren't more interested in those areas, because well. they seem to me to be the most interesting bits. But before, yeah, why don't sorry. we get the, the, like, the important liquidity into the table? Absolutely, a bit of non, non-course rec- liquidity here from Chablis or something. I mean, we couldn't go, I mean, they do have some nice stuff from Italy, but... I'm outsourcing. I actually have, yes. to, have to do a story on what's going on in wine markets because I haven't really been focused. Well, um, I, I, I can. I, I'm not sure. Is it you, a good year? Bad year? It must well, have been a stressful year. Well, when it comes to wine, I think you and I both know that you have someone who you might tap <laughs> up for that. Yeah, I, that's why. I, that's why I compartmentalise and <laughs> I, I do He's very, nothing. very good. I mean, a, a man who can be that knowledgeable about both energy markets and fine wine. I mean, <laughs> that's extremely valuable right now. Anyway, right. but, but I um, think. Um, what do you reckon? I'm just going to go pretty safe. I'm going to go for a little village wine from Burgundy. Oh, Le Burgundy, very nice. Yes, yes. I I have a very reasonably priced Polini Montrachet. That sounds nice, a Montrachet. I might have a swing at that. Let's do that. Montrachet is one of the ones I do like. Yes, I I know that. (laughs) I wasn't guessing, right? I I did have a bit of inside (laughs) info there, right? Sorry, I'll report myself down to Canary Wharf and the FCA, but. Yeah, yeah. No, I I, I did did have a. Yes, yes. 
So going back yeah, to sorry, your wait, wait, wait. story, oh, because yeah. you were you were telling us that you were yeah. at AIG with some amazing mentors. Yeah, um, they were wonderful men. How wonderful. did you? Yeah. So what was because you were there during you, you kind of saw the beginnings of oh, yeah. all that craziness. With yeah, it's that led us to two thousand eight, of course. Yeah, yeah. Look and. What happened is that AIG Trading was taken over by AIG Financial Products. Uh, and Joe Cassano was an interesting man. Joe Cassano took over AIG Trading, sacked most of my colleagues and kept 35 of us on. And I'm never entirely sure why I was one of the people that were kept on, other than I had a couple of clients who did more than simple foreign exchange and commodities. I had one very large client who was very active in dollar swaption markets and that sort of ticked the box, I think, with Joe Cassano at least, uh, demonstrated that I might be interested in other things mm -hmm. that were relevant to AIG financial products. So around the, the merger took a little bit of a while to, to, to complete, it was obviously an internal one. And then those of us that were kept on moved into that famous trading floor, Curzon Street, Mayfair. Where I hang, I remember hanging out outside, and into I remember CNBC sent me to stand outside. So you're just trying to collect gossip, weren't you? Yeah, I'm kidding. It was just one of those. Bullshit, I was probably one um, of those people with my head down, charging past you. We probably met each other. Probably. We don't even know. But it was um, one of those like panic moments where the, the camera yeah. crews just go outside a building. They don't actually speak to anyone. They just stand outside. Oh yeah, it. Oh, yeah totally. <laughs> which which often coincides with the bottom, but that's by the by. But, yeah, exactly. But. So look, I uh, went into this, and it's, it's a bit like meeting Bernard and, and Alan. So you think you know a bit about how the world works, and then you realise you know nothing. So here I am in this single trading floor, and, and there's all these people doing all these things that I didn't understand. But here's the irony, perhaps tragic irony, of AIG financial products. Internally, it was totally transparent. But externally, it was obviously opaque. You know, shades of some of the things that are happening in LDI perhaps here in the UK. But, you see, that was the thing. I could walk 10 feet to the guy doing all the selling of protection on structured credit at some point. I was going, look, I'm really sorry. Can I sit down and have lunch with you today so I understand this? Right, right. And you'd have these weekly sales meetings. You'd have these monthly risk calls, all hands of AIG or Bonk AIG, as it was called, in Tokyo, London, Paris. And, uh, and Wilton, Connecticut. And you'd go through what everyone was working on, the big transactions, and you, it was clear that they were making an awful lot of money. So I just kept my head down. I was still trying to do directional macro advice, and obviously that didn't entirely sit within what AIG was financial products were doing, but I learned as much as I could about everything that AIG financial products did okay. and how it touched every moving part of the financial system. Now, I Did heard, the guys doing it mm, know that how interconnected they were? Oh, of course they, they did. They, they were in the know, No, okay. of course they did. And, and the problem with that, that, the reason AIG financial products was so systemically important was because no other institution had the capacity to do what they did. Right. If you were doing these regulatory oh, capital, oh, we've got. Is here. Yeah. Thank you. If you, Izzy, were doing these massive regulatory capital trades, uh, yes. Oh, yes, yes, yes. Oh, lovely. Different opinions. 
Oh, I love it. That tastes nice. I Thank like you. it. Thank yes. yep. you. Very nice. Is that, a, is that a consensus? That is consensus. Right. Which is rare for me, but like, yeah. No, it's a little bit too cold, but that doesn't matter. It's absolutely lovely. It's nice. Thank you very much. Perfect. The, um, You're talking about you were saying who, who did people know? Of course yeah. they knew. But there was the capacity. Capacity. No, please, after yeah, you. No, um, no after okay. you. Um, Cheers. Charles. To liquidity. Liquidity, oh. well. Mm. To, to its return, let's hope. Um, well, it's always there, it's just often in the wrong place. Right? <laughs> exactly. So, so you got yeah, go on. So AIG, thanks to its AAA rated insurance mm. parent, had huge excess balance sheet, which the parent lent to AIG Financial Products, which AIG Financial Products then said, well, this is amazing. Mm. We can insure the super senior tranche of all these structured credit transactions. We can help banks move enormous securitizations off the balance sheet, off their balance sheet, you know, these regulatory capital trades that I mentioned. Mm. It was a huge, gigantic thing. But first and foremost, it was a story of capacity. No one else could do what AIG financial products did. And then AIG got downgraded. Yes, and I remember, right, And that was an important now. thing. And there, I noticed a change in tone, although I was not close enough to the, obviously, the top people at AIG Financial Products, but you could see the change in tone when AIG was downgraded. And then there were these weekly meetings about liquidity buffers and there were more downgrades were fine, which of course completely missed the point. And one of the guys I worked with and worked for, he started saying to me, I said to him one day, you know, Jimmy, what's, what's on your mind? He said, there is not enough collateral on earth to make this work if we're downgraded again. Oh, interesting. Okay, yeah. I didn't know what that meant. Mm. I didn't know. But I picked up on that and thought, well, obviously that's not great. But I hope that doesn't happen. Now, fast forward to June 2006, and I'll accelerate this because I don't want to bore listeners with my no, mentor backman career. But I got lucky. Mm. Seriously, I got lucky. I had a front row seat at the circus, <laughs> right? Yeah. How lucky was I to go from doing pretty basic FX macro advisory, whatever you want to call it, to sitting right there with all these people doing this stuff. And again, internally, it was transparent. Now, you didn't have full look through on everything they were doing in structured credit, but you could ask questions mm. and people would answer them. Joe Cassano may be redundant in June 2006 because it was blindingly obvious that yeah. I was not the guy to sit there and do whiz-bang structured products and stuff them into whatever. I just, it just, it's just not my thing. But I tried to keep my head down, stay out of trouble, and then it may be June redundant. June 2006 was yeah. just when the first, if I recall, that was the first sort of fluttering of subprime had hit well, the market. Just early start, payment defaults. Early yeah. payment defaults which means that the borrower misses one of their first three, one or more of their first three mortgage repayments. It was right there. What I didn't know on the way out, and I'll just, I can't say too much, but just to say I had a bit of an argument with Joe on the way out about the future of AIG financial products. But what I didn't realise is at the moment I'm saying, well, you know, I'm not sure whether you're a going concern, mate. He'd been told, as it later emerged by some of his senior colleagues, that they had a bit of a problem with the credit they were underwriting. I didn't know that. Um, suffice to say, when I stuck my boot, um, gave him my two cents worth, he wasn't terribly thrilled by that. But then I got lucky again. UBS rings up a very dear friend of mine who's now retired from finance. His name's Mike Bicken, and I want to give him a shout out because he's a great man. 
So I'm sitting there, made redundant by Casado, having a bit of an arm wrestle with him over certain topics. And then um, this guy, Mike Bickling, rings up. <laughs> he says, hi, you don't know me, but we know you. Can you please come in for an interview at UBS? Ah. And I'll never forget it. How could you not want to work for a man who starts the interview by saying, James, thanks for coming in. Honestly, I'm really shit at this. <laughs> but I'm really shit at interviews. But this is what we're doing. And you're like, you think, I just want to work for this guy. Right? He's just up front. Right? He was clearly industrious, but yeah. he was never going to sugarcoat anything. Yeah. He was never going to, he was just straight up. And he was for all the time I worked with him. So I'm plonked on a institutional sales desk at UBS, sitting next to Mike and a couple of other great lads and, and, and girls as well, great, great people. And I said, look, I know all this stuff because I've been at AIG. With regulatory permission and with appropriate internal blessing, would you mind if I talk to people about things other than just foreign exchange and rates? Because I think we need to short subprime. Mm -hmm. And people are like, what? I said, look, I, seriously, we need to check because I think something's about to happen and people need to understand what happens if US house prices stop going up. Mm -hmm. I need to explain to people. I need to get in front of people. Now, did I know when I sat down at UBS, at UBS in August 2006 <laughs> mm -hmm. that UBS was stuffed full yeah. of subprime, structured credit, everything else? No. I had no idea. So I gently start prodding, and then I am introduced to people doing this structured credit, and they're good guys, they're good guys. Yeah. And they knew there was a problem. So I start chatting, and I'm broadening my network all the time, because I've seen things at AIG Financial Products, I wasn't smart enough to understand them. But now I'm working with people on the outside, yeah. who, uh, who, can who are great friends seen. to this day, mm. who put it in context. I'm like, oh my gosh, it's worse than I ever understood. Mm. It's worse than I ever understood. Now here's the great thing about Mike Bicken and UBS. They let me loose on their client base, internally, externally. They let me loose on policy makers. And I was trying to explain to everyone who would listen from August 06 onwards, here's what happens if US house prices stop going up. It's not about subprime. It's not about balance sheets. It's about the entire financial system because everything is connected. And I would be able to stress test what I thought was happening, not just against these extremely bright colleagues at UBS, but also some of the sharpest, most astute fixed income investors on earth who had similar concerns. And I'd compare notes about balance sheets, derivatives, collateral, derivative documentation, all this stuff that was going to be in play, but nobody really understood the totality of it. So via notes from a small island, sitting on a desk at UBS, I'd start to tell people, this is what's happening. Oh, I and see. It, and That's how notes started. Well, it's how it accelerated. Ah. I'm just going to have a, a bite to eat. It's quite warm, hot okay, well, even, but I'm going to go for a try it because it might be just me no, no, burning my mouth. smells amazing. But, um... Mm. So so it you, is quite warm, but it, so look, it's it was in like, the style of a McDonald's apple um, dessert, if you recall. It, well, in the, in the is heat, it really? In the I'm heat. kidding you. <laughs> you know, ones that you couldn't eat, and then when they and then they, they would turn and they'd get really cold very quickly once they turned. Well, but anyway, can let's I, hope. Let's can hope I just say one. I'll have to take your word for <laughs> that? Had one of those. Right, I've never been to that one near Wembley. I know the one you mean. <laughs> anyway. Um, 
So but yeah. Like, <coughs> so you started sending but out. You see, the it's notes. like it's like it's like you. You're like, hey, something about this smells, right? Yeah. You were writing the same thing. Something about this smells. Mm. And I need to try to understand it and then articulate it and explain it, right? But the financial system, you know, everyone, these fancy terms, dynamic disequilibrium, whatever people say, it's a dynamic system, it evolves. But it is first and foremost about physics yeah. and collateral. That's what makes it work. And collateral chains, as Manman oh, likes to talk about. And he is dead right about that. But, so I'm writing what I'm seeing. Mm -hmm. I'm helping people untangle things. And I remember in September 2006, and I observed that the night before, and the guy that traded the ABX indices for UBS, great guy, out of New York, by the way, he was called the Ox. <laughs> he was great. And I became a great buddy of the Ox, still a great buddy of the Ox, who's semi-retired from finance, but just a great lad. Um, I think he was from Alabama or something. And I would start talking to him because I was getting curious about these ABX indices. And there was one day in September 2006 where the infamous ABX 0602 triple B minus, it traded below par for the first time. Yes. Someone really hit it hard. Because prior to that, just to explain to our listeners, you had the CDO machine. So you had this organic bid where people wanted to take risks via the CDO machine, which ensured that the bottom of the subprime capital structure was fairly well supported. Now, the fact that someone could come in and club that, I think it was probably later emerged that it was John Paulson putting on one of his positions, and it stayed clubbed. And it did not immediately go back to par. It's like, here we go. And that, to me, was the key. Simple as that. That thing has been as solid as a rock. It's been hit. It's not coming back. Here we go. And this is the 0602 triple B minus, the bottom of these subprime credit indices. There was the tell. And that was September 06. Oh, no, you know, this, other. No, no, it's happening. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then it just Happened. kept unfolding. It was a process, and people kept fighting it and fighting it. No, 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 it's localised. And here's the other thing. Let's, let's get forward, right? This is pure plumbing. Pure plumbing. The BNP ABS funds in August 07, everyone goes, oh, that was the thing. Wrong. Wrong. I shouldn't say this is a bit nasty, but we're seeing it again now. Price discovery is a bitch. Yes. Now, so much, the reason that the subprime crisis was had this lagged, delayed impact is because for a long time, most of the subprime collateral was held in non-mark-to-market vehicles, CDOs. That was the primary attraction. Non-mark-to-market vehicles, low volatility, hold to maturity, job done. Don't talk to me about defaults, it's all good. In July 07, as was always going to happen, Moody's and S&P started, they'd already been downgrading the subprime RMBS, but they started downgrading subprime CDOs. And that's when the real money people, abiding by their investment committee parameters, had to look for a bid. Yeah. And there wasn't one. Yeah. So as soon as you downgrade those vehicles, the pension funds and others that invest in them are out there looking for a bid, and off it went. And so the 
this narrative that it was the August 2007 um, blow up mm. or illiquidity of these BMP ABS funds is yeah. extremely convenient and, and really was a consequence of some of the other things that were already in motion. So it was all, it was all there was tension in the market anyway yeah. and the collateral chains were already creaky and mm. you had you had no bid basically. Yeah, yeah and it happens at the end of every cycle, we're seeing it again now. Price discovery is hard, particularly if you think you can hide or avoid price discovery by putting the most of your most of your assets into a non-mark-to-market vehicle. Yeah. Or, as Not we know them fantasy. today, well, what's, what's <laughs> called to today model. private investments. Now, what is the appeal? Oh, okay. Think about this. Now, there's no doubt yeah. that there are some phenomenal private assets in the world today. There's no denying that. Yeah. But I think part of the attraction is not just we will commit to venture capital or private debt or private credit because we think, you know, we've got little redemption risk as an asset allocator. There's opportunities out there to lend. Banks are pulling back. All of that's true. But I do think there's another massive attraction. Low vol. And I, low vol. If there's no mark to market, or theoretically there's no mark to market, it's a low volatility exposure, isn't it? You see? Right, but there's potential for vol at any time, right? No, 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 okay. no, no, no. Not according to the allocator. Really? Right. No. Okay. Right. Why has there been so little marking to market of all these whiz-bang privately held fintech businesses in 2022? Because right. you don't want to take the, you, no, you want to be not. in denial. Like, it's better to be in denial than like test the value of your investment. So what I'm saying is that I wonder with the attraction of a lot of these private allocations. It's not just the opportunity, it's the which is huge. It's volatility arbitrage. Think about it. If I can blend a strategy right, that see. has next to no mark to market yeah. with public market exposures that are mark to market every day, then the blended volatility of that portfolio is much lower. Ideally, is much lower. As long as there's no event that forces you to that sell. compels you to attempt to mark your private exposure to market, which is obviously part of the conundrum we're seeing here in the UK right now. We saw that a little bit, obviously, with the um, fiasco, I don't know, was it like two years ago now? When was the whole, um, what's this, how have I thought? Um, what do you think about it? Uh, H2O? Not H2O. Well, H2O as well, but... Well, that's just... That was... But also the big... Uh, how have my, my brain... Greensill? Not Greensill. The, um, the... There's a whole long the fund, list of... The fund... The, the major fund provider whose name is not... Was it Hargreaves Lansdowne? No, it was... Um, it no. was... Um, the Invesco. No, 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 the guy that no, the guy that left Invesco rides horses and yes, looks like yes, a complete yes. nonce. Um, Wood something. Woodford. Yes, Woodford. That there was we it. go. Woodford. I think we'll send. The, I think we'll send the wine back. I literally had a brain freeze, but yes, that's the one I was. So yeah. he was. He, he was the extreme example of that. He's oh, like, you're flashing. Oh, here we go. No, to be clear, listeners, she means my phone. <laughs> And someone's just texted me who we both know. Hope you're enjoying the Sancerre. Okay. <laughs> He's a cheeky mother. Um, but okay. look, um, no, it was um, uh, the Woodford business mm -hmm. took it to extreme levels. Yes. Yes. And again, price discovery is hard. Yes, yes. If you assume a perpetual bull market, great. But if you're wrong, lights out. Yeah. So think about that 
private versus public volatility arbitrage, right? Or volatility smoothing. Because if I can smooth the volatility, well, it's more predictable. If it's more predictable, I can take more risk. Yes, exactly. Win-win, apparently. So look, we accelerate through 07 and 08. UBS has let me loose on all sorts of people. I was going in and out with all sorts of central banks, treasuries, talking to the highest level policymakers. So you were like their special ops man, kind of um, out there doing recce's to, and like like a diplomat almost. To I got to meet phenomenal people. Yeah. And I continue to meet phenomenal people in policy. And I wonder whether part of the reason I'm able to continue to engage with phenomenal, often invisible policymakers is because I want nothing from them. Yeah. During 07 and 08, many of the meetings that key central bankers were taking were buy-side firms or bankers saying, you must do this for us, you must do this for us. Okay, there was, some of that made sense. But it's amazing. It's exactly what we're doing now. You know, finance is a people business. People, too many people. It's, it's about numbers because that's the way we keep score. But actually, it's about people. Yeah. Who do you trust? Who do you trust? If I've got some heavy hitter coming in the door every five minutes from BlackRock saying you must bail out this out the other, okay, fine, fine. But if I've got someone coming in the door in the middle of this unbelievable crisis, yeah. And the first question is, how are you? And they're speechless. And they, a couple of them, say to me. I'll just say, generically in Washington, I remember it well, going in to see great people in an important building, and you could just see how drained they were. The fact that they were even prepared to take a meeting with me is extremely kind. <laughs> but they knew that I was there with my plumbing hat on and stuff like that, my toolbox. And i just say, how are you? And they just couldn't speak for a minute. And that's all they needed to say is nothing. They were just completely drained. So you were obviously learning bits, like different, picking up different bits of the puzzle um, wherever you went. How aware of the bigger picture were all these people that you were talking to? How much knowledge exchange did you have to do? I'm reluctant to call out anyone by name, but the people that impressed me the most are the people who are genuinely curious uh -huh. and never stop asking questions. And let's not forget that these central bankers that sometimes people are too harsh about, they're very bright women and very bright men. They are not bad people. They are highly educated, skillful people mm. who see the world through a certain prism, which tends to be their models and their forecasts. That's the way it works. And I have the greatest admiration to this day for people who grew up as highly skilled model-driven economists and yet were able to pivot immediately uh, into yeah. the plumbing. And you know who I'm going to mention is Guy. Go on. Phenomenal. Debell. Oh, really? Just phenomenal. But it wasn't just him. Okay. There were others, like Don Cohn, and I'll be very careful to mention people who are not Anyone. in central banking. Yeah. Carney was phenomenal, right? Absolutely phenomenal, as were all the Canadian financial regulators. So I'm not going to go through the list, but there were people out there saying, wait a minute, yeah. there's something really big here that we're missing. Let's go into it. Let's dig and dig and dig. And then again, as we said at the start, fantastic, yes, thank you. thank you very much. As you, we said at the start, beware anyone who claims to be the plumbing expert. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And there was one absolutely execrable central banker during that time. I won't name him. How anyone ever 
listens to him, I don't know, who claimed to be the point man between the Fed and Wall Street and everything else, and I'd have to say he was one of the most clueless men in 07 and 08. Absolute disgrace. And yet still makes out that he somehow saved the world. He was just an absolute clown. Anyway, but, but look, it was going in there, talking to a fellow human being under enormous stress and saying, look, X, Y, Z. Here's the evidence, X, Y, Z. Maybe you need to think about this. Here's why. Wish you all the best. Go. That was it. And those sorts of conversations continue. But it's that often overlooked people side to this business that I think is so vital. Right? Whether it be policy, whether it be 0708, whether it be good women and good men doing their darndest in a very difficult situation. And yes, I'm not saying we don't critique some of the decisions or anything like that. But they were not out there to cause harm. Yeah, I, doubt, right? I, I think that's clear. I mean, I, I'd be very shocked. So if let's take that. Let's take an example, right? Mm -hmm. Subprime is contained. Yeah. Subprime is contained. Yes. Who said that? Ben. ben. It's not con contained. <laughs> it was Ben. Right. He's now a Nobel holder. Yeah, and that's why I mentioned it. Yeah. Now that Bernanke thought subprime is contained does not make him a bad man. Far right. from it. Right. It's just, it was just the high point of the model-driven DSGE model view, if you will, of how the world worked. And Bernard's, Bernard Connolly had many great insights, still does. But one of his greatest was in saying, you've got to understand, James, that everything is through the prism of a model and that they turn the dials up and down and that if there's ever a global crisis, they will be late to understand it and late to respond because the whole institution is driven by the model. But he said eventually they'll get it, and they did. So subpriming is, is contained was silly, but it spoke to the model driven. And then by the end of 2007, I'd like to believe largely thanks to Don Cohn, he gave a great speech at the end of 07 saying, uh-uh. We, we need to absolutely let it rip now. And he was right. And that was before Ben Stearns and everything else. But, look, it wasn't just Bernanke who believed subprime is contained. Everybody he, believed it was everyone, contained. Everyone I wanted remember. to believe. I remember that hey, time. Shades of the last two years. Everyone's desperate to believe inflation's going away. Okay, so this is a good point, I think, to bridge into now. Because I think there's a big concern that we're seeing similar, yeah. similar situations. Yeah. And um, and what for me as a journalist, what I find very interesting is the turn in opinion because mm. this time last year there was still <clears throat> rampant denial about inflation being yeah. a problem. Yeah. But like you know, there were a few people who got it right, but um, those who spoke loudest were still getting a. Um, a very bad press and I think a lot of it is to, um, this is my personal take is that in the early days even in, if you were saying anything about inflation in 2020 yeah. you were immediately politicized as someone who was complaining about lockdowns because yeah. it was yeah. it was immediately yeah. kind of like politicized through that so there wasn't um, a permitted or stigma free um, option. Go, keep you keep doing. No, no, doing keep talking, culture. please. There wasn't a stigma-free op option to like warn about the perils of inflation or supply-side supply issues. Or is is it the same person? Well, I was reaching for my iPhone not to interrupt <laughs> no, a conversation, but I was reading. I started reading. There's a shot. 
I started reading is it about a recommendation of no 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 <laughs> Andreessen oh, A16Z yes. um, quite the promoter yes. but nevertheless an extremely brilliant man and last week he put up a list of things he'd been reading because people were saying oh where's he gone what's happened to him well he's actually just gone away to, to study read. and think good on him and one of them was a book by that marvellous, marvellous man, Thomas Sowell. Oh, yes, I do. The vision Conflict of the, and Visions. Yeah, The Vision of the Anointed as well. I haven't read that one. So I was just going to my book here, and I've started reading it. I'm like, it's, it's like, so the thing with me in books is, is nearly every book I read is, how could I have not known of this book? I know, I know. How I'm could I have person, not yeah. read it? 20 years ago, right? So just read a quote, and I think this, this is to answer your inflation question yeah, and everything on. else, right? And this is Thomas Sowell writing, the fact that the actual course of events followed a pattern diametrically the opposite of what was assumed and proclaimed by those with the vision of the anointed made not the slightest dent in the policies they advocated or in the assumptions behind those policies. In this respect, as in others, the vision of the anointed had achieved a sacrosanct status, hermetically sealed off from the contaminating influence of facts. How good's that? Well, Tom, How good is Tom that? Tom is massively underrated, but you see, he's one of those... He's 92. He's also... Oh yeah, he, he, he is quite I mean, this is a ancient. brilliant book, which I strongly encourage our listeners to, yeah. to have a look at it. It's well, brilliant. The problem, you see, when I tried... When I, Again, we live in this very polarised world, so yes. when I recommended Thomas Sowell, I immediately got so much pushback from Twitter sphere or whoever. Well, I'm not surprised because... Because he's seen as a very right-wing... Um, well, it's very difficult because here we have a brilliant... Well, it's more complicated than that. Here we have a brilliant, courageous black man mm. of the right. Yes. Oh. That's a bit hard to pigeonhole, isn't it? Right? And you, you, you're absolutely right. The way people leap on things he, is shocking. And, and he, um, he's really been... Like, I'm just, I was very surprised that people were very critical um, mm. of, of any recommendation that I made about him. But Because um, I try to be very dispassionate. I try to like analyse everything from all spheres. I, I think mm. it's important to see things from all perspectives. But if you, if you don't... If you shut yourself off from like one particular market, political view, whatever, you are, you've got a blind spot. <laughs> oh, and, I see what you um, did there. I see yeah, that's, yeah, that's that very was clever. accidental. Yeah. But, um, oh, of course. But it's really important in markets to see the big picture. So I don't understand how. And so I wonder, like, Adam Curtis's new documentary is just out. It's mm. all about uh, Russia, and it's called Trauma Zone. Mm. Um, and I only managed to. Thank you. Our fish has arrived. No, we're still going. Um, I almost had my gin and tonic <laughs> removed <laughs> there, which would have been that would have been an out outrage. I'm, I'm, I'm Thank you very much. Bread over here. Yeah. No, no. I mean, just in case. Oh, we'll put it. Yeah. We'll just put it here. I'll tell you what. Even better idea. Why don't I do that? Yeah. Oh, even that. There we go. There we go. It's all sorted right. that way. There you go. Um, Thank you. Thank you very much. Thanks, mate. And Dauphinaz. So the conversation is getting interesting now. Definitely. Well, I'm sure it's taken this long. No, no, it was already <laughs> interesting, but it's getting very, really interesting. Right. So I. So Adam Curtis has just yeah. done this new um, yeah. document. Ah, ha, ha, ha. Yeah, that's that, uh, yeah. that was stupid. That yeah, was not clever. No. Um, yeah. And it's all about Russia mm -hmm. um, and the fall of communism, but also the fall of democracy. Mm -hmm. 
interestingly, it's the first series he's done that he hasn't voiced. So there's no voiceover. He's just using archive footage and occasional um, mm -hmm. subtitles. Mm. Um, so I've, I've watched the first two. Mm. And it's, in, I mean, I kind of suspect this is why he's doing it. He's kind of sending a signal that maybe we're going through the same thing. The last episode was all about perestroika right. and the nomenclatura sort mm -hmm. of sticking oh. tight to mm -hmm. the idea that this was all working mm -hmm. and, you know, in the, uh, Matt, so when you said that quote about the anointed, mm -hmm. it's very similar, right? And, um, oh, very. And then you look at what's happening in Britain, but it's not just Britain. I think it's, it's, it's not just Britain. Well, I think the press here likes to make it sound like it's Britain. Yeah, but yeah. Well, please get stuck in that. Okay. Right. But just... Well, yeah, getting on to the brill there. The, if I wanted to have a mild view of what's happening, I would say that we're in a world that Janice wrote so well about in Groupthink in 1982, that book. You've got all these monocultures where people nod along, agree with each other. Frankly, we've just seen another example this week with the IMF in Washington. Is there actually any critical thinking or no, I do people just so. get together and nod along? I'm, I'm not, not certain, but not denying the importance of these gatherings, but I'm not sure anything really controversial gets raised or addressed. So we could say it's groupthink. We can talk about monocultures, but then we've also got this politics and these platforms which incentivize uh, collective thinking. Because if I'm okay. going to... Hmm? Every financial yeah. crisis is to do with groupthink. And yet we do it over and over and over again. Yeah. It's insane. Sorry, go on. Yeah, but also... Every discussion is polarised as intended. If all those discussions are going to be facilitated by platforms that sell advertising to make money... Well, how am I going to get the maximum number of eyeballs? Yeah. Well, it's going to be incentivising controversy. Yeah. I mean, the stuff, people wonder why Twitter's appalling. I wonder why people are surprised Twitter's appalling. What do you expect? You know, so much for the public square. Yeah. It's nothing of the sort. So, look, we know, we know all that. And, and it goes back to another point. It's really hard to avoid that. It's really hard to, be, to avoid being sucked in because look, look what you and I have been doing, checking these things oh, yeah. beeping at us. I mean, admittedly, we have to because of today being today and the, the past couple of weeks here in London. But, but, you know, these distractions, these constant distractions. And then the final point, you know, the, the scroll down for likes, scroll down for likes, who's responded to my LinkedIn posting. I mean, so much of LinkedIn is just appalling. But, you know, what's the reflex? You scroll down your screen, it's like a slot machine. It's fiendishly clever. You scroll down the screen, oh, it's, it's 100 like... 100% addictive. It's, right. it, it's, uh, it, addiction by design, to use the title of the book, but it is. 100%. It's fiendishly clever. And it's so hard to step back from it unless you turn it off. And that, that takes discipline. And on your point about inflation, right, making yeah. it practical, mm. it was obvious by June 2021 at the latest at the latest, exactly. that inflation was going to be non-transitory, right? Now, to be fair, the Fed figured that out and tried to pivot 
Do you think and the Fed put, f figured that out? Yeah, they, well, they had to because it was staring them in the face. In so June 2020? No, in July oh. after that. July and then especially September last year. So then why was Janet Yellen being all kind of in denial about it? Up well, I'm until not, well, I, well, I'm not sure that she was. I'll just say that. But, okay. Um, so what, she's blinking like well, coded messages through her eyes? Well, yeah, yeah. I'm not, I mean, I'm okay. not so sure she was blindsided by it. But, but um, Fed's trying to catch up with reality, trying to tell markets that we're going to have to hike a lot. Markets like, yeah, whatever, it's the Fed, haha, -ha, it's going to come down. And then we pivot into 2022. Inflation's accelerating. Everyone becomes an expert on goods price inflation, supply chain bottlenecks and everything else, which mm -hmm. is great. Freight rates, everyone says, oh, they're coming down, they're coming down. All of which is true and all of which utterly missed the point. Mm. And the point was, as we came out of lockdowns, we were pivoting from goods to services. So what's more important, goods inflation or services inflation? Yeah. And unfortunately for the Fed, as we've seen this week, and yesterday in particular, services inflation is very sticky. So it's true that the higher volatility components of inflation have probably peaked. That's good. Goods price inflation has probably peaked. That's great. But services Labor inflation... Labor stuff hasn't even started. Well, a little tiny bit, maybe. Not tiny bit of softening in the US labour market. Maybe wage, wage growth is still rising, which is good, but seems to be off the peak a tiny bit. But, but look, here's something that was hiding in plain sight yet again. Mm. Don't want to know. It's transitory, it's transitory, it's transitory. Group think, group think, consensus talk. It was clearly not transitory. And we now have the extraordinary situation where the Fed has hiked 75 basis points three times in a row mm -hmm. and is going 75 basis points next month and will be hiking well into 2023 at this rate. It's extraordinary. And the thing that I find bizarre, it's a bit like subprime, mm. not to be clear in a systemic sense. Mm. It's like subprime. It's right in front of us. No, 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 it'll be okay, it'll be okay. It's not okay. It's absolutely not okay. 100%. It's bizarre. It's absolutely bizarre. Did you read Kathy Wood's um, piece? I do not read Kathy Wood because it would make me angry. I was sent it this week. Okay. And I'm like, hang on a second. There seems to be a bit of a dichotomy here. You're investing or claiming to invest independently in companies that are going to dominate the future with massive TAM, total addressable market, mega earnings potential, yippee. You've got That's a got conflict of interest. And now apparently it's all the Fed's fault. Yeah. I mean, just complete distraction. So you think that's Irrelevant. Just, no, I think that's a good argument. So that's just PR. But she's the PR supremo. Hang on, hang on. Who of the famous investing celebrities on FinTwit or LinkedIn is not PR? All of it is PR. Sure, but she's really taken it to another level. Like, mm. She's done the whole outrageous calls thing. That she she made all her analysts like hyper available for CNBC, yeah. and I mean she leaned into it on another level. I think. Yeah. Um, because the, the the other guys they kind of pretend to be like, oh, we don't talk to the press, but here this time we'll do you an exclusive. But she was just all in. She was just. Well, I I am not the slightest bit interested in what she thinks because it's not relevant to how my investors should think about it, my clients should think about investing. Right. If they co-invest in something she owns at the right price, great. But if they're co they're, but she's just a manifestation of one of the most extreme liquidity cycles any of us will ever see. Oh, wow. 
and fair play to her. Mm. She figured that out. She's attracted all these assets. And she rode that way. She is still attracting inflows. Mm. And her performance has been absolutely diabolical. Humans are not terribly rational. But she's um, she's become a min stock. Yes, she's not the only one. I mean, she's now she's been picked up by that Wall Street bets crowd. So she's she's pandering to that kind of crypto crowd. The worst, sort of, you know, Izzy. The worst thing you can do as an investor is become a public celebrity. Yeah. Because it then becomes almost impossible to change your mind. Yeah. Nearly all of the extraordinary investors I work with around the world, across every mandate, jurisdiction, time zone, uh -huh. nearly all of them are invisible. Yes. They want to focus on doing the right job. They do the minimum of publicity when required by their employer or whatever. Mm. But they know that if you get hooked onto a view in public, mm. the mob will make oh, yeah. it almost impossible for you to retreat. And well, that's diabolical for your portfolio. Well, look at Liz Truss. I mean, you can't have a conviction at the moment in public because you are you are led by the... I mean, in politics, it's slightly different, but like I think, you know, <coughs> the crowd's not going to necessarily make you change your position. But in politics, like, we are... I call this... You know, I, I, I like to frame things through the anacyclosis perspective, and I what see this... That? This is... Um, an ancient Polybian um, view of the world. It's, it's very much like Plato's uh, okay. Republic. But the idea is that all political systems are cyclical. Mm -hmm. So you go from strong man to uh, corrupt tyrant, then it goes to oligarchy, benign oligarchy, bad oligarchy, democracy, like rule of the people, then mob rule, and then mob rule needs to pre create a strong man. Okay. And it's cyclical and okay. democracy kind of works because it synthesizes the cycle in a controlled way mm -hmm. and so you don't have so the tensions are kind of released through the like the you. founding fathers like especially in America try to they learn from Polybius and they right. try to like synthesize the cycle so like the Chinese do like they try to like move the move preempt the crisis you know <laughs> so you have a you know a regulated way to change the cycle um, but um, from that perspective what's happening now is we're in mob, mob rule because it's Twitter that's deciding how policies are implemented so any any decision that is made by a politician can be immediately overturned if the brain crowd on Twitter which is actually a very small small demographic in the larger scheme of things it's just the kind of mostly the influential kind of anointed no I'm fine I'm fine um, and they have so much influence over policy that policy is being led not in a democratic way because it's actually a very small mob rule that's dictating things all right let's think about that you make a good point well, look at like, look, like but, Boris Johnson. He but, couldn't do what he wanted to do. But I'm not suggesting you are. But there is no denying the colossal own goal, stupidity, arrogance, and hubris 
of what Truss and Quarteng did. Oh, it is I'm one not... of the dumbest things I've ever seen. 100%. And I don't, I don't think they're baying to the mob. I just think they've had a cold, hard conversation with reality and realised that they're toast. Yeah. But so I think, how come... But why did the markets really freak out? Like, well, what? how come no one's talking about the French budget that was released in the middle of this? How come the French were committed to spending 5% of GDP budget deficit? Sorry, that's not right. Budget deficit, 5% plus of GDP, spending all this money. Was there a short... Did, did oats, French government bonds, get smacked? That's what I find weird. Well, but it shouldn't be because it's credibility. The main issue for Trust and Quartain is um, quasi <coughs> was the comms situation. I mean, it was just dire comms. No? Let's try this. <laughs> you and I in the Parliament 12 years ago write an extraable book together called Britannia Unchanged. <laughs> exactly. Which is just... Pitiful, but it spoke to an overwhelming ambition. Have you read it? I'm not. No. No, I haven't read it. I've read extracts, and that was enough for me to put it down. <laughs> but you write a book. Now, frankly, Britannia Unchained as a concept, I like it. Mm -hmm. But as long as it is well-founded, thoughtful, strategic, stress-tested, consensus-building, let it go. Mm -hmm. This book was just a fiasco. And here's the mistake markets made. The markets made the mistake in thinking that Truss and Quarteng, once in high office, would be different to those jokers in Britannia Unchanged. And they weren't, they were consistent. That's who they are. But the problem here... But that should have made them priced in. Like, that, that's what no. I find weird. Like, well, for me, well, that's... Well, there was... You could see what gilts were starting to do through August. Well, this summer. You know, gilts were unsurprisingly like other government bonds under a bit of pressure. And then it got to August and Sunak told the FT, it's like, you know, you ought to be mindful of credibility here. You can't just go out there and spend money. And that was a warning. Everyone thought it was sour grapes. He was dead right. But here's where it goes off the rails. There's nothing wrong with borrowing money. There's nothing wrong with saying we want to target growth of 2.5% through the cycle. Yeah. There's nothing wrong with saying we want to increase defence spending, this, that and the other. But do not do the following. Do not deliberately relabel your mini-budget a fiscal statement to avoid the OBR. Do not yeah, fire Tom Scholar at Treasury, no matter what you think of the bloke, and he can be quite obstinate, but do not fire him. Uh -huh. Do not simultaneously announce there's only 12 billion impact to the budget, did not simultaneously announce with that a cut in the top marginal rate of tax when people are doing it tough. And then do not simultaneously announce with all of that that you're going to end the limit on banker bonuses. Yeah. You should have at least waited a few months. None to of do that, that would have seen the light of day yeah. if they were taking advice from other people beyond their circle. They deliberately excluded others because here we are, we wrote the book, we know what they're doing, game one, let's go. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. they are absolutely, and her growth plan, and it's her fault, is dead on arrival. So to be clear, from a market's perspective, guilt's were already under pressure. Yeah. And then we had this event where the market said, you are absolutely kidding. 
I haven't mentioned the energy side. By the way, their plan to cap energy prices was the most coherent part of the whole thing. Seriously, it was coherent. But that's not the point. When your credibility goes, mm -hmm. it never comes back. 100%, you can only burn your reputation. So I'm not sure it's the mob or anything like that. I think, I've got to say, I think they, it's their own fault. It's on them and it's uh, embarrassing know, to watch. I think they have been embarrassing, but like at the same time, I would say that immediately backing down and like, I mean, the bond market basically, the bond market ruling everything. I mean, I don't know, I'm a little bit, you know, if you're gonna be a political kind of visionary, you have to like show some muscle at the same time. I'm not saying they're right, but if they were potential, I mean, I'm not saying they are. I don't know if they are. Well, it goes to a deeper fundamental problem. What do all these people believe? Right? What do they even want? No, 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 first and foremost, what do they believe, the politicians? Uh -huh. What do they believe? Mm. Where do they stand? Because we had, this is the interesting part. This assumption that Trump will change once he's president. Mm. Wrong. Mm. He will never change. People have, didn't understand that he has been consistent his entire life. Actually, Trump is one of the more consistent people in politics. Yes. And if anyone was surprised by Trump, that's not Trump's fault. It's people who are surprised by his behaviour. Same with Boris Johnson. How can anyone be surprised when in office Boris Johnson turns out to be exactly the same man he was out of office? But Boris's like, thing is being known to basically not have any consistency in some way, so... No, but maybe I'm not being specific. It's not who they are. But what do they actually believe? Mm. What is the fundamental driving political motivation for Boris Johnson other than me? Yeah, well, he's exactly. Which what is do I why believe? Where do I stand? He's not. Where are my moral red lines? Do I believe in big government, large government? Um, we must get on to ESG mm. and stuff like that. But, you know, where do I stand on the energy transition? Where do I stand on this, that, and the other? Where do I stand? Mm. What do I believe? What are my deep seated internal red, red lines? lines yeah. Right? as opposed to blatant opportunism. And as Quarteng would remind anyone who met him, he's a very clever man, and there's your problem, right? And it applies to politics, tragically for these mob, this mob, as much as it does for investors. The minute you start believing, as people did for 20 years, sorry, I know I'm pivoting a bit here, but the minute you start believing, after 20 years of low interest rates and no inflation, that investing is easy, you're dead. Yeah. It's not easy. It should never be easy. If you think it is easy, you must be doing something wrong. It's as simple as that. So I think for me, what I'm trying to flag here is what do these people believe? Can they articulate some kind of wider political framework or set of beliefs? Because all I see even now is just blatant opportunism. I don't know. You see, that's, that's where I push back on trust because I think she had more of a, a vision than I don't necessarily agree with it but I respect the fact that she was bullheaded enough to go I'm prepared to be unpopular but then when the cookie crumbles she wasn't prepared to be unpopular and that's I think more damaging because six months of trust trying to do her crappy plan um, I think it's more has more integrity than just immediately backing down because the bond markets. I mean, people have to be prepared to do unpopular things. She didn't things. back down because of the bond market per <laughs> se. She backed down because it dawned on her if she kept 
on the path she was on, there would be this unavoidable impact on UK mortgage rates, which is you know, still going to happen, but to it's a lesser degree. It's going to happen anyway. There's going to be unbelievable impact see, on everyone. I don't see, see this, I think that's where I differ, because I just don't see anyone coming in with a better plan. I don't see a better plan out there, because I see this as COVID of finance. With COVID, there were only two bad choices. You could do like nothing and have herd immunity um, and have front load for pain, or you could have lockdown, which just back-ended the pain. Um, Here's the thing. We don't need to borrow the money. There's any amount of money on earth that might wish to invest in a coherent UK supply-side strategy. Mm. Infrastructure, student accommodation, science parks, you name it, logistics. Mm. Take the Aussie super funds, gigantic pools of capital, which yeah. are only going to grow. Yeah. And unsurprisingly, the biggest ones have over the last several years been opening offices in London. So if you think about the redevelopment around King's Cross, yeah. it's known as Google, but it wasn't. Right. It was Aussie super that did it. And it looks fantastic. And that's a pretty good test case for what can be done with a bit of thoughtful investing and planning. Right. So the irony is if, you, if your objective is better growth, by supply side reforms, which seem to be the thrust of it. Yeah. Yeah, you probably need to borrow a bit of money. But where's the big picture strategy where you demonstrate credibility and competence and partnering? Oh, it's a bit like friendshoring of supply chains. Well, hang on a second. Should we also friendshore global capital flows as well to help us finance our ambitions? But all of that's a bit difficult, it seems. That's what I'd do. Bringing There's tons investment of money home. out. Hmm? Bringing investment home. No, just just demonstrating competence, working with trusted global partners, and encouraging them to continue investing in the UK and all the infrastructure it needs. Mm -hmm. I mean, the gigantic Canadian pension plans, Aussie super funds, the money's there. But wasn't that, that wasn't that her hope? Like that seemed yeah, to be. Yeah, but she like didn't know how to deliver it. She was utterly incompetent. I'm, I'm sorry, I know I'm going to sound tough, I'm, but I'm, I have absolutely no sympathy for these people at all. I, I was not, look, to be honest, I was not a fan from the very beginning. I was a bit worried about her coming into um, mm. power. But now that being a contrarian, I feel like I'm, I, I have to kind of push back on some of the, like, absolute um, hatred that she's getting. Because I just think, I don't know, I, I get what you're saying. But I just think maybe, maybe she did, like, she did have a growth plan. I mean, it literally was called the growth I'll be, plan. I'll be very pedantic and say she actually didn't have a plan. A plan without valid execution or co competent execution is no plan. She had yeah, an idea. Yeah, it was a disaster. And no. she, yeah. Well, I, I hear you. Mm. She had a sketch of what she was trying to do. Fair enough. But in, in believing her towering genius and that of her chancellor, she tried to do an end run around the institutions that would have given her plan a sliver of credibility. Yeah. And she paid a huge price at a time, to be fair, when bonds were already on sale. Well, we should talk about that. Yeah, let's... Because this LDI thing was just the latest example of something hiding in plain sight. But would the, would the LDI thing have come about either way? Yes. Right. I've been telling my clients that. It's like, look, this... Own goal by Truss and Quarteng accelerated the inevitable reckoning for these LDI yeah. programs. So it front loaded the pain in that sense? Well, it depends how they reallocate through the other side of this. But, but I mean, look, the good news is, from an accounting perspective, yeah. that much higher interest rates 
means that the net present value of pension fund liabilities goes up. has fallen. Oh no, but they're going net to present more. value. Net present value of the pension liabilities yes. has fallen right, because discount rates have gone up. Exactly, right? their assets yeah. have gone yeah. up. Yeah. That's the good news. So going into this model, most of the biggest defined pension, uh, defined benefit pension funds in the UK were sitting on funding ratios well north of 100%. Happy days. Yeah. While still clinging to these very um, risky portfolios. But people have been worried for a decade that if UK rates went up abruptly for any reason, LDI would have a problem. Now you fast forward to 2018, from, you know, let me rephrase that. So for a decade, from the early 2010s onwards, people have been wondering about LDI, collateral leverage. 2018, the Bank of England's Financial Stability Review, excellent, discussed some potential problems with LDI leverage and collateral. Fast forward to late 2019, the pensions regulator conducts a survey of defined benefit pension funds here in the UK and worked out what kind of move in the gilt curve or UK rates would wipe out all these collateral buffers that these people use to underpin their portfolios. So Bank of England Financial Stability Review, November 18. Pensions regulator comes back 13 months later with the results, 13 months. I've been going through it again this morning and you'll see me say something about this through the weekend when I've completed my thinking. But unbelievably, only 47% of UK defined benefit pension funds responded to this survey from the regulator. I'm thinking to myself, is that because they didn't know the answer? Right? Something to think about. So, and then November 2020. Interesting. Annual cash out. Excellent member of the Financial Policy Committee of the Bank of England. He gives a speech talking about liquidity multipliers, all these collateral chains and how they go backwards. Drawing on the experiences of March 2020. Brilliant. So my point is this, what happened? What happened after that? Nothing, nothing. Now, of course, the point of a stress test, which the pensions regulator did in 2019, is to revise it. Nothing, nothing. Annual cash out gives this wonderful, thoughtful speech about liquidity multipliers and collateral chains. And he complains that we have a 21st century financial system, which is true, mm -hmm. with 20th century data. We have data holes everywhere, it's ironic. So we keep telling ourselves markets are driven by data, people scraping news headlines, this, that, and the other trading. On the regulatory side, there are holes everywhere. Big, big gaps. There are huge chunks of the financial system that we still don't see, and that's bad. But someone needs to put their hand up and say, I got this. Someone needs to have political cover, maybe jurisdiction by jurisdiction saying, right, not good enough, figure it out, figure it out, figure it out. Hasn't happened yet. So here we have, and then we move to early 2022. Interest rates are going up everywhere. Bond, bond yields are going up. Gilts are selling off. Linkers are getting a bit of a chin in. And you start to see, or at least I start to see these stories in the press, talking about collateral buffers mm. at pension funds. And I'm like, uh-oh. And even though we'd had a fairly minor move up in rates, there were some schemes that already, already run through their entire collateral buffer. Eight. And this was April. April. And then Aon and Mercer, who have been very quiet these past couple of weeks, uh -huh. asset consultants, put out advice to all their pension fund trustees saying you need to top up your collateral buffers. What happened? Nothing. This is all in the spring. So you knew 
well prior to this conniption yeah, in yeah. Gills that something was getting, it was getting very dicey, right? The collateral underpinning so many of these LDI, let's call them schemes, was already a bit tight, meaning that if anything further happened, the ability of the end pension scheme to meet collateral calls in this LDI portfolio or this LDI zilch. fund, zilch. Mm. And the only way you meet your collateral calls is by selling stuff. And that's what happened. And it's all hiding in plain sight. Now the flip side of this is when the dust settles. Now let's think about incentives. Mm. You and I are trustees of a defined benefit pension fund. So the net present value of our liabilities has collapsed. Awesome. Our funding ratio has come off because our assets have fallen, the stuff we own has sold off. So let's say if at the start of September our funding ratio was 125%, which is great, mm -hmm. highest it's been in a long time, now it might be 110% or 115%, I don't know. Now you and I can see the shitstorm that's coming. Public inquiries, mis-selling, you name it, witch hunt, you can see it coming. Right, it's all your fault, it's all your fault, how you do this, leverage in pension funds, whose idea was that? You can see it all coming. So you was like, we've got to get in front of that. We've got to de-risk our portfolio. We've got to reduce the use of leverage. So we start selling things. We start selling things, we start selling this, we start selling US corporate debt, we start selling US structured credit. There's been a huge amount of selling of that over the past couple of weeks, biggest in a long time. Aussie RMBS, all this stuff, we'll chuck it out the door. We'll sell what we can to de-risk our portfolio. Thank you very much. But here's the trick. All these UK pension funds are going to return to buying linkers and bills. So good. Cash, yeah. not on leverage, Just with cash. Real money, yeah. So there's going to be a void here, and I think the Bank of England might get very lucky, right? But if they, I think the Bank of England is going to walk away from the market maker of last resort function and things that might have a bit of a chin here and there. But I think we're going to be broadly all right. We shall see. But if you and I, these pension fund trustees. We're going to minimise our use of leverage. Well, can I? Just and we're going to invest in the cash equivalent. Yeah. And we're going to be back buying all these bonds again. In but in terms of the leverage Thank and you. in terms of the, um, the derivatives that they were using, was that a regulatory thing or was that their own initiative? I think it was incentives. I don't think. We'll put it this way: no defined benefit pension fund is going to use leverage in any way without first checking with the pensions regulator. So the answer is yes. And secondly, don't forget there's a corporation, a corporate, behind all these pension funds. They would have checked it with their auditors, accountants and everything else. Should our pension fund do this? The pension fund trustees would have taken legal advice. It wouldn't have been done on a whim. It was about incentives. But of course, if you've got a bull market that goes on and on and on and on, well, you know, I don't want to miss out. I want to keep up with the game. I'll keep going and going and going, and maybe I'll get further into a liquids. And one of the lessons we learn every financial crisis is that levered duration can be bad. And the worst form of levered duration is levered illiquid duration, because there's no bid. And then you're looking for equivalents. It's the same lesson. Yeah, every time, every time. So look, I... But that's because you end up going there because there's nothing Thanks. else left. <laughs> so you have to. Well, that's right. So, so it's, it's a kind tricky of one, cyclical in that sense. Yeah, but once again, yeah, but once again, we've learnt the lesson that the plumbing matters. It really matters. Now, to be fair. So how could yeah. how could they have navigated? What could they have done? They could have had their corporate sponsors put more cash into their collateral pools. They could have. Uh, uh, thank you. Thank you. They could have gone 
to other liquidity providers and collateral providers and said, look, we need to borrow treasuries via a custodian stuff, which is completely legit. There's a whole range of things they could have done, but most of all, they could have run down their risk portfolios. Mm. And here's the thing, there's, there's, there's many moving parts this LDI debacle, but there's two, two essential features. It's not just that certain plans were looking to sell growth assets like stocks, investment grade credit, securitisation. It's not just that. It was also that others, why were they scrambling for variation margin against their... Because they wanted to keep the hedges. Oh, I see. This is what people miss. Why did they keep posting more and more collateral? Because Why the hedges, because yeah. the hedges have a bit of value pending, pending the conversation you have with your pension trustees. And here's the trick: I don't think there is such a thing as an emergency meeting of a pension fund committee, right? They are slow-moving capital by design. Hedge funds in and out every five minutes, in and out, change my mind tomorrow, this day, you know, that's great, flexibility. Pension funds idea. are like... I like the idea of like an emergency pension fund Think trustee meeting. An emergency <laughs> phone call of a pension fund trustee. <laughs> no, no, sorry, Robert's on the 18th too now, can't, no, no, won't do that. No, it doesn't suit, maybe next month. Yeah, or something like that. Anyway, <laughs> and the, the way that these pension funds lean so heavily on the asset consultants, like this morning, part of my reading, I was reading an investment committee notes uh -huh. from the Avon pension fund down in the southwest of England and how they'd engaged with Mercer. And they knew in the spring collateral calls, oh yes, we must look into that. And? They didn't. And? So it's all out there, but, but think about it seriously. You are managing a mandate. Mm for a pension fund that has been set assuming certain liability assumptions, take a long-term view. So the hedge has a value and it's often for accounting reasons. So it's valuable. It's valuable to the corporate you sponsor. Want, you don't want to get rid of it. Don't want to get rid of it. So the manager of your LDI scheme says, look, this has moved out of the money. You, the pension fund, need yeah. to post more collateral variation margin. Oh, I don't have any. Well, you better try and find some. Otherwise, under the terms of our um, is the master agreement and credit support annex, we can tear up. So here's the irony. Part of the reason that these entities were scrambling to post variation margin is because they didn't have approval to tear up the hedge. That's something that uh, could that's only... That's very interesting. So there's this kind of mismatch. Yeah. And I think it's not in every case, it's in some cases. And then there's a huge difference between the gigantic standalone LDI schemes and these pooled LDI schemes. They're two different, two different things. That's a very good point. Because the smaller yeah. ones, by definition, do not have the operational um, facilities Frictions. to manage it. No, they don't have the infrastructure. So they give their 500 million pounds or a billion pounds to a BlackRock and Insight. So they're part of the widest. And the gift goes into a pool, hence pooled fund. But then the bigger ones, they do it themselves in standalone mandates because they've got the operational so infrastructure. they're more nimble. They, they Should be. Yes. Yeah, so and there's a lot more stories to come out of this. But the takeaway is, oh, yes, guess what? Please. A bunch of levered market participants, to their surprise, ran out collateral, had to scramble, had to delever, and it created a huge mess. But the story further down the line is they're coming back to the market and they're not going to be leveraged. They're going to be, yeah. like, very much real money Look, I've been investors. telling... I've been and telling my clients for two weeks. They're going to offer the bid back into the market. Look, for long-term investors who have been keeping their thinking hats on as inflation continues to rumble on and interest rates go up and market volatility goes up, I mean, we're getting more and more dislo dislocation. Now, for the long-term investor, that's phenomenal. 
Illiquidity plus dislocation means you can be market maker of last resort as well. Name your price. And there's been so many things to buy. I mean, it's just unbelievable things have gone on sale. And I mean, trying to save, okay, maybe not long-term nominal gilts, but short-duration gilts. Every wealth manager in the country has been buying short-duration gilts. Every single one. Yeah, that was. so I was on this panel the other day with uh, Johanna Kirkland, Chief Investment Officer at Schroeder's, and um, oh, yeah, you mentioned Wiley, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, well, Chief, Global yeah. Chief uh, Investment Officer, Strategist, sorry, mm. at BlackRock. Mm. And they were saying that exact thing, that everyone is going to the short end, mm. no interest in the long, long end. Wiley was was uh, underweight equities. Mm. Paradigm sh regime shift was the the termi terminology she used. But um, but with this move into the short end, what happens then on the? I mean, so there's no. Well, are, we, are we facing a long long standing kind of? I mean, if you can't if the government can't borrow long, that is that is kind of problematic, no? It is, but. At a price, people come back. People come back. You know, people are running around right this price. week saying to me, oh, you know, UK long, long dated gilts trading below equivalent Greek government paper. And I'm thinking, like, you can know why they're doing it, like, ha ha ha, what a bunch of idiots. And I'm like, at least one of those prices is wrong, and probably both. Well, this reminds me of um, the greatest like buying opportunity ever was after Lehman collapsed. Oh yeah. Because how do you mean? Well, so apparently their collateral was all in inflation, like tips, ah. and so they had to shed all their collateral. It made a massive dislocation between conventional treasuries yep. and tips. Yep. But no one had the cash to execute it. So there was like this one hedge fund I remember doing a story about who executed part of that trade, and they they walked away like. The thing that, that's remarkable about that is you're right. When you get these these massive margin calls, often coincide in tops or bottoms, respectively, of the assets that's causing the margin calls. Think about nickel earlier. See, I'm not saying it's good or bad, but you know, it was the top of nickel. And you have to be alive as an investor to these dislocations, because margin call by definition means an indiscriminate selling of whatever. Right? Mm. In this case, it was UK assets. So, and gilts and linkers and stuff. But, but yeah, there's opportunities out there now. There will continue to be opportunities. But I wonder if we need to think about an important policy point. Mm -hmm. Let's think about expectations. Think about 08. Oh, we bailed out the banksters. How dare we? Right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, okay. Well, if we hadn't, we would have had no financial system. That was well, just the exactly. reality. That was the and reality. And then you get to COVID. And then you get to COVID. Um, and we do this massive direct fiscal transfer to households and businesses, which apparently was impossible. Massive, colossal transfer. And that raises expectations, is it? Yeah. So here we are again, and we have the energy crisis. Households demand a bailout. Okay, fair enough. All across the Western, well, sorry, certainly Europe and the United Kingdom, bailout. Because you must do something. You bailed us out in yeah. pandemic, you must bail us out again. So you can imagine what the next clamour is going to be a mortgage bailout, isn't it? Well, yeah, I'm 100% I'm sure of this. And, and, the logic the, is. But this like, assumes no something. Moral hazard. We have massively raised expectations of what fiscal policy can do 
yeah, in, we... in, in, but you know where I'm going with this. Well, that's fine, but that all resides on the assumption that governments can continue to finance themselves at a reasonable price. Well, this is the interesting thing, because I mentioned, like, is this going to just trans... Are we just manufacturing a sovereign balance sheet risk thing? And, um, and Whaley and, and Kirkland were quite... Mm. I mean, they, 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 they don't think it's a balance sheet recession at all. They, they think corporates are going to be quite fine. No, and I think that's probably right. And uh, but they are also they, they they didn't like they weren't convinced about my idea that the sovereign sovereign risk is going to go up. What but do you mean I by, 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 by higher yields, basically? Yeah, higher yields, yeah, okay. and and and, and well, I, I personally think. I mean, I don't see. Look at Poland. Poland. Right. I mean, it's not just COVID. It's obviously the Ukraine war and the energy situation. Poland's already got a mortgage holiday, right? You know, they've got a mortgage holiday for looks like they they did it in July, and the, they did a law where the banks hmm. have to. They are forced to give um, mortgage holders a mortgage holiday, right? The banks have gone absolutely nuts about it because they, you know, not making any money from it. Yeah. Um, but that's going to be rolled on because yeah. what's happening now, they've got like 20% inflation or something insane yeah. like that. Yeah. And it's not going to go away for as long as they do mortgage holidays. They're We're not even as indebted what we, as... What are we doing with these bailouts? We're subsidising demand. Hang on a second. How are we going to make this so-called energy transition, which is a much better term than climate transition because it's energy and yeah. physics. How are we going to make this transition if we're subsidising demand? Don't we need to actually reduce our demand of things? And well, how are we going to subsidise better behaviour with households if we're going to... I mean, well, I get the politics. But, but it's, but, it's completely know, it's conflicting. Yes. The message is totally conflicting. I think in Germany, like, unexpectedly, energy demand has gone up, not down. Are you having dessert? Um, I can. What would you... Well, I don't would you? Look, I don't want to impose. No, 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 please. I mean, it's... Um, the I, only, you know, only limitation I have is that at 3 o'clock I have to uh, I have a car park. Parking. So how long? We, a little bit. I've got. I've still okay. got time. Right. So right. we can. I mean, I, I can extend it, but I just need to remember to do it. No, no, no. We'll, uh, because they are bastards. <laughs> um, I'm going to order. Or, or sweet. I'm going to order the souffle. You know why? Because it's a souffle. No, because the souffle doesn't rise twice. <laughs> and I'm thinking of Mr. Quarteng. Okay, right? fair enough. It's one of the greatest put down in Australian politics. Paul Keating then opposition leader John Houston, Australian yeah, I'll Parliament. I'll join you with the souffle then. The souffle Alfonso, doesn't rise twice. It's called the Alfonso. It's called the uh, Alfonso. Yeah, yeah. Alfonso mango souffle. Let's do that. Mm. Okay. Um, and I'll have a espresso as well. Uh, I'm okay, thank you, because I have to drive. But, um, yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll. Uh, Alfonso souffle, please. Souffle, yeah. Two, please. Two and souffles, yeah. And single espresso as well, With please. your dessert? Um, actually, now would be no, great. No, yeah. one yeah. single espresso. Um, what I was going to say is, yeah, ESG, yeah. completely um, conflicting at the moment. The definitely kind of perspective that security now makes it okay so security is now falling under the umbrella of ESG yeah so it's bad stuff done in the name of it of security is okay mm. that's a new phenomenon um, but I'm kind of of the opinion that this is all kind of very state directed like I put the you know I put it to them at the panel I said like, is this are we at a paradigm shift where we're going towards this sort of 
It's not really capitalism anymore. It's not conventional capitalism. It's it hasn't not... been for a long time. Well, exactly. So what is this? And, and they're like, well, capitalism wasn't working. It was making everyone unequal. But did we really have capitalism? Has it really, you know, well, what's going on? And well. and where does ESG come into it? Because when you start thinking about what it's about, it's this sort of state-directed partnership with corporates. It's kind of very Italy, 1930s. Well, I'll just say that I often get into trouble. You? With yeah, shocking. <laughs> I'll finish the sentence. It came out wrong. <laughs> when I'm speaking with friends back home in Australia, I often get into trouble because I ask them, you know, there's quite a few uh, climate evangelists in Australia, as you may have noticed, and I say to them, um, okay, I get it. Australia's got a lot of sun, a lot of wind, a lot of space. Okay, let's let's have a red hot go at it. But um, if it's such an obvious comparative advantage, why do we need to subsidise all of it? Yeah, this is that. Right? Yeah, that is. And befuddling. I'm not sure Pareto said too much in compare when he was writing of comparative advantage about subsidies because you would think if you were being a purist that a competitive advantage talks for itself, at least when it comes to financing itself. So why do we need, is it really a comparative advantage if we need these colossal subsidies? But the point I was just trying to make before we mm, interrupted sorry, ourselves with dessert was just this assumption that if anything goes wrong, don't worry, the government did it, can, government can fix it because we fixed it in the pandemic. And by the way, magnificent, magnificent. Probably contributed to some of the inflation problem we have, but there you go. Oh, energy bailout? Yep, government. Oh, well, mortgage rates have gone up, bailout. Where do we stop? All of that rests on the assumption that governments have the fiscal space, meaning the borrowing ability at the right price to underwrite all of that. Now, maybe they do, mm -hmm. but you need to make sure that you're credible, yeah. that you do it the right way, and that I think the good part of what Trust and Quarteng have just been through is that no other country on earth, well, at least in developed markets, will try to do anything remotely like that. <laughs> it has scared the pants <laughs> off everyone. Yeah. Everyone got yeah. together in Washington and basically said, now, Prime Minister, Chancellor, ex-Chancellor, can you run us through... Mr. Dead Man Walking. What were you, what, what were you thinking? And it was not yeah. polite conversation. It was like, tell me what you did, in brackets, so, we so do I we. never do it. <laughs> right? Yeah. Okay, but it's all about capacity. Yeah. And look, this is a bit technical, but one of the fiendishly clever things that Mario Draghi did, and there were many, but by golly, he was savvy and he understood balance sheets, collateral, everything. He was absolutely without peer. He really did understand collateral. Not only did he buy an awful lot of assets, Thank you. he deliberately restricted the lending of those assets which meant that for a long, long time, European collateral convert. markets were very, very tight. Mm -hmm. So repo is. rates, mm -hmm. you know, there's a, there was a semi-permanent shortage, scarcity of collateral in Europe, deliberate. So yes, of course the ECB lends stuff out. Uh, as of this week, they've lent 107 billion euros of their stockpile of assets. This is the entire system, not just the ECB, but all of them combined. Mm -hmm. Roughly half of which is them lending bonds or whatever for cash. The other half, roughly, which is lending bonds for oats or BTPs or something else. And it's all pre-prescribed and it's all... 
but they've deliberately acted to ensure that collateral remains scarce. Why? It's a multiplier effect on their asset purchases. It's very clever. If you make it difficult for, the theory was, and maybe is, that if you make it very difficult for people to borrow bonds or oats, let alone BTPs, it might make it more difficult for people to short them, use them, you know, maybe. It's very clever. The Bank of England is unique amongst Western central banks in that it does not lend securities. Now, the DMO does. Now this yes. Is, the no, DMO has a gilt lending the... facility, mm-hmm. and if required, the Bank of England will provide the DMO gilts, which the DMO can then lend, which I think is rather odd. They I need kind to... of like create them, well, they like some fe- like almost like weird ghosty ones. Well, well, there's that. I need to check the fine print, but I think it's the function of the Bank of England's asset purchase facility being an asset purchase facility company that is owned by the Bank of England. Yeah. And that there's something going on there that I need to check it. So it's not that the Bank of England don't understand, because they do, that from time to time you need to lend gilts to the market to make it work. It's that it seems to be done in a convoluted way. But then again, it was deliberate. But here's the thing. I'm going to show you a chart because I, I looked oh. at it the other day and I actually I actually used some Excel, no. rubbish Excel skills to make it. So I was, I was curious to know what was happening. Anyway, this, you've got to forgive my Excels. So I went and I went, you can download all the data that they actually do lend. This, well, this is the rate they've been lending it at, which is not surprising, it's mm. in line with, uh, with. Uh, oh yeah, it should be going up a lot, so that's good, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. And then this is, but like in, in terms of how much they're lending, I mean, it's a shitty shot, it's a really bad shot, because I'm not good at shots. Yeah, but it's not, the point is it's not very big. It's not very big at all. Right. They're not lending much. So, but the, we could get into uh, swap spreads and everything else, but the point is, a lot of the collateral scarcity that plagues the plumbing in London and Europe, especially Europe, is very deliberate. And you see swap spreads moving out. And, you know, just an example, if if I'm looking at buying a five-year gilt and five-year sterling swap rates are 75 to 80 points higher than a five-year gilt, well, wouldn't I do something in swaps rather than the gilt? And then, you know, easier said than done. Requires the operational efficiency and requires the mandate, but it's a no-brainer. Yeah, that's enough, yeah. But the collateral side of this is, and I know I keep saying it, but the collateral side of this, I wonder how well it's broadly understood even now, 15 years after it became apparent that, well, it's been apparent forever, but collateral is what keeps the lights on underneath our financial system. It's what makes it work. Mm. And it's the stuff we take for granted. It's the custodians, it's the securities lenders, it's the... It's the whole shebang. The, the whole shebang. And from time to time, it's exposed and not in a good way. And the way I think about what's happening in markets now, and, in, and independent of what we saw yesterday after the inflation data, which is this extraordinary rebound in US equities, independent of that, which has given a lot of people hope again that this is the real, 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 absolute no-brainer bottom, we shall see, it seems to me that the problem we have is that there's not enough unencumbered assets yeah. to keep this humming along. And it sounds bizarre because people rightly say, don't be stupid. We've issued all these sovereign bonds over the past three years. And I say, yes, you're right. There is no collateral shortage. 
there is no collateral shortage. There are 16 trillion euros of eligible collateral for the ECB. I know because I sort of think a lot, of which 2.7 trillion euros is used. Europe is not running out of eligible collateral. Mm -hmm. There is no collateral scarcity, uh, shortage, but there is collateral scarcity. It gets trapped, it gets pledged to central counterparties, it gets locked away, it gets in liquidity buffers, it gets parked and it doesn't circulate, which is Manmohan's excellent point. The plumbing gets rusted. So we have this shortage of unencumbered collateral. Yeah. That by definition, unencumbered means it can circulate freely through the, the system. The free flow is gone, yeah. essentially. The bit that yeah. you can like easily move around. That's what I'm worried about. And then if I wanted so to... The, the collateral no. that ends up in the clearers, for example, with, yeah. with the LDI, ah. can it be relent? Yes, this is an important point. Yeah. It would be absolutely absurd if we required the world to move more and more of their OTC derivatives to central clearing, yeah. which requires more and more initial margin and variation margin. If we stockpiled all of that mm. and didn't liberate it from time to time, exactly. that would be a disaster. So of course, whether it be Clearstream, Euroclear, Eurex, LCOs, they all relent. It's all tightly controlled. And if they've got 150 billion sterling of collateral coming in today, which I think roughly is the number for LCH, or it might be higher after the past couple of weeks, but let's go with that. Euroclear the same, 150 billion euros, it's shot up because rates have shot up, so people need to buy. They're relending that. And it's very, it's overnight repo. Not occasionally one week, but it's very safe because it's overnight repo only against sovereign collateral. But then think about that. What the hell are we doing? We are requiring pension funds or some counterparty to post more variation margin yeah. to LCH. Okay, that's legit. Let's say it's cash. So the pension fund, assuming they have any, scrambles the cash together, posts it to LCH. LCH then says, oh, thanks. I'll re-lend that into an overnight gilt or gilt repo or something, <laughs> overnight gilt repo of whatever the bond is, and then we'll unwind that. What? What are we doing? And then the alternative is, you know, it, it gets messy because if these trends keep moving, if we get higher realised volatility, higher rates over the next year, then all these guys are going to be stuck trying to find collateral again. So it's actually vital that LCH and others relend it to the street. I mean, it's amazing. It, it's. I'm watching this. I I'm feel like, like this is what's going to happen with oh, housing. Oh. I just worry about it. I was really, this week I was watching what I thought was all these collateral chains unravelling and I was really worried. I was watching it, I was talking to people, I was talking to repo guys I know, I was talking to bank treasurers, I was talking to central bankers, I'm saying look, I'm just seeing something here and I know the data's patchy but I'm just seeing a pattern and I'm worried about it and there's this side pocket of financial system called collateral transformation. So the ECB has full pan-European data on repo transactions that are bond in exchange for cash, okay? So if you go to the ECB or anywhere in Europe, anyone doing a transaction is obliged to report it. So they have the data, bond for cash. But if it's collateral versus collateral, they have no data. Interesting. And yet, that is one of the most important parts of the financial system. It goes back to what uh, Anil said about 21st century financial system with 20th century data. Yeah. Unfortunately, that's true. Hopefully, what we've just been through will incentivise people to say, hey, wait a minute, we need that now. We'll get the political couple together, we'll bang heads, let's go.
But the collateral transformation industry is huge. This is not repo, it's not select securities lending per se, it's collateral transformation where people are upgrading. Right, because I was their gonna bonds. ask, so the BOE obviously extended the eligibility of its collateral this last week or yeah. how how important was that? Well that's taking collateral in, right? Yes. But it's not lending it out, it's taking it in. So but you, will it then, does it not allow for transformation though? Because you're allowing to, you're, you're absorbing more of the... It allows time for people to heal, which is good. Mm -hmm. Hats off to the Bank of England for what they did. I'm surprised it mm -hmm. took as long as they did. I thought the sequencing was strange. Surely you say, here's the repo facility, mm. come and get it, before you embark on a market maker of last resort operation. Mm. But it was the other way around, which is a bit strange. So hats off to them, because they've been thinking about it for a little while. Here is a broad repo facility on pre-agreed transparent terms. Here's the fee. And by the way, we're broadening it to include uh, US dollar collateral and structured credit, where most of the selling pressure was. In other words, at a price, if you can't hit a bid, you can finance the position with us yeah. and you can all take a deep breath. That's what it's about. It's about buying time, so fair play. But interestingly, you see they're not going to release the results until it's shut. So we don't know what's happening on a daily basis. It might not be used at all, although I find it unlikely. But the tricky bit was they said, we're not going to tell you daily data on usage of this facility. Okay, fair enough. We're only going to release aggregate data after it's wound down on November 17th. And why do you think that's important? Stigma. They don't want stigma. They don't want everyone going. Push it back and yep. yeah. Yep. And I get that. But I want, I want to be clear about something else. I think the leadership of the Bank of England has been absolutely hopeless. Right? <laughs> I, know, I know that's obvious, but seriously, this man is not up for the job. He was never up for the job. And I know that's harsh, but he's hopeless. He could not communicate his way out of a wet paper bag. The um, comms has been terrible. Like, his, no, I want to be precise. His comms yeah. have been terrible. Terrible. Right? And it's a shame because you, know, you and I, I'll say discreetly, engage with these people and have done for a long time. The staff at the Bank of England are generally fantastic. They are really, really good. There are people there with deep expertise, deep intelligence, deep skills, always curious about how the system works. They do a great, great job and they're led by a buffoon. I know that sounds harsh in a podcast, but he's a buffoon. And the only reason he survives is because Quarteng obviously was even worse. <laughs> right? No, but I, I, I definitely So agree. I just want to be very put that out there. He, he's just hopeless. I mean, the comms have been just shocking on another level. I'll, I'll, I'll just say again, his, his comms, comms his have comms. been shithouse. But I, I'm just surprised that he's allowed to do that. Like, why, you know, how is it that the system doesn't... Is, I mean, I'm not familiar enough with the structure at the Bank of England to know how much power the governor has over... Huge. Yeah. He is the ultimate decision maker. So he can't right? be put in check by some lower level... Well, there might be some kerfuffle at the court, FPC. the Bank of England's court, but, you know, these deep, deep institutional issues are of great interest to me. And I've been trying to read everything I can in limited What's spare time. What's Andy Haldane doing these days? I don't know. He's at the RSA, I think, but... I don't know. Because he was what he left in like very abrupt. Did he leave abruptly? He kind of left out the blue last. I think as brilliant as Andy was and remains, I fear that he had burned every bridge. Oh, I see. Right, and I think he was unacceptable to large chunks of the political and banking community. Because he's an out of, out of the box thinker. No. 
No, that that was to his advantage. It's. I'll just say I think he burned every bridge. Okay. The best person Position. to run the Bank of England right but now would be Paul Tucker. I would agree with that. He's he's absolutely utterly brilliant. But where? Um, how does the? I'm actually not sure about how you change the regime at the government. Isn't there a like? Is it a term? Or? Oh yes, it's a term. There's a so set term. You, you can't get rid of him early. No, it'd be it would send the wrong signal. I mean, especially now. Yeah, right. exactly. So Bailey, unfortunately, we're stuck with him. Until when? When's his term up? Well, let's see. He took over from uh, Mark in um, just after COVID. So I'm going to say April 2020. And I think I should know this. I'm going to say it was. Fi it's normally five-year terms, which so get renewed for another still five. Got a lot of time with him then. Yeah, unfortunately. But then you know what? All the Unless investors I work with, even the local ones, have just learned to ignore him. Right. I okay. know, oh, and that's not a great position to be in because he's still the governor of the Bank of England. He's an important person. Mm. But um, they've just like yeah, moved on. We're not going to put any positions on him. And here's the interesting thing: a technical point. We've got a Bank of England MPC coming up on November 3rd and the pricing, the market pricing um, of ex expectations for the Bank of England. I'm going to look them up, but um, I'm just going to cheat here and go to my... Uh, go for it. My Bloomberg, because I want to make go sure I get it right. Go brain. Oh, yeah. And I just... Uh, da, 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 here we go. Based off OIS, yeah. Market is pricing that bank rate as of November meeting will be... 318 basis points, which is pretty huge, but at one point it was implying a 150, in fact, 200 basis point hike from the MPC on November 3rd, which would have been unfortunate for the mortgage market by Dillette and everything else. But the thing is, even if we come all the way back down and the market's pricing in 100 basis points for the MPC to reassert credibility, they're almost certain to go 75. They are pre predisposed to underwhelming under this man. Yes. And, and really, I think the efforts uh, of the staff at the Bank of England and in the markets operations area of the Bank of England are commendable and extreme during this mess. They've done a great job and they're immensely capable people and they're world class and thank goodness for them. But look, we've got a tricky time because the, if, if I'm s not winding down but summing up so much of what we've discussed is about credibility. Yeah. It really is. And is it any wonder people are losing trust in institutions when they are won by total clowns? You know, who are interested in... Like the Bank of England now puts out comic books on monetary operations. It's like, guys, <laughs> you're a serious institution. Yeah, no, no, I, I completely agree. Right? It's like, guys, who out there is telling you to dumb it down? This is hard. It's a serious business. Your target audience is not the person not sitting on the 93 bus or the, or the tube in from Turnham Green. It's like, it's only serious people read it. And, do you, do you, you know, think they got a bit distracted then with like being all, because they were very, they, they had that big promotion, like mm. that, that period where they wanted to do the one bank thing mm. and they were very like, mm. you know, come flock to us, you know. Mm. Yeah, I wonder about that. Do you remember what I mean? No, like, I remember exactly what you mean, yeah. and, I, and I wonder about some of that. Like, was that actually sensible to like do all I that? I think the jury's out, but look, it's... And what about, um, I want to know what you think is the big blind spot. Duh, duh, duh. Oh. Because, so there are two questions I definitely want to ask you before we mm. finish. Mm -hmm. One is, what happens to housing? What you, what you're, like with interest rates and what happens, are we facing repossessions 
what is going on that on that and then whatever <coughs> you think is the big blind spot and blind spots well here's here's a strange one because blind spot like look when people think about macro and markets as a result of certain events over the past 20 years people think about left tail there's this tendency to think about what's going wrong okay mm -hmm. and i know this might surprise you but when i think of blind spots I think of blind spots in my thinking, I think of blind spots in market. I think of blind spots as in, are everyone too bearish? Is everyone mm -hmm. too bullish, right? Mm -hmm. And arguably for the last year and a half, everyone's been too bullish, wishing inflation away, which was just silly. And fighting the Fed, which I think is even dumber. But there you go. Blind spot. Well, here's one. The first blind spot for me is that we can actually muddle through here. Right. We can actually muddle through. So yes, we've got some economic recalibration ahead, tighter monetary policy, higher interest rates, promise, problems for housing and mortgages, yes. But maybe we can muddle through because ironically, we're so overstimulated Western demand that households still have a bit of wiggle room on their balance sheet. That would be amazing. Yes. So that's the first one. Second one is that despite yesterday's data in the United States, inflation has peaked and the wage pressures might be coming off the boil. That's good. But really, you didn't need that. It's like blind spots, like no seams, like what's LDI, what's collateral. And I think for me, it's how much exposure has been built up over a long period of time into levered duration. And I don't just mean gilts, I don't mean linkers, I don't mean treasuries, I just mean levered duration because people needed to keep up with the play. Right. And in a very low volatility, low interest rate world, a decision to go to cash was a career decision because if you're not going to get paid anything on your cash, you know, you miss out when things turn around and head higher again. Now you're actually paid on your cash. You're paid to wait, right? which is different. But over a long period of time, out of necessity, we built up all this levered duration, levered exposure, long growth stocks, long hyper growth, long, you know, on and on it goes, long liquid credit, long private equity. That's all fine. That's all fine in the right hands. But I, as recent developments have shown, I don't think we have much margin here for another setback. That's my blind spot. I don't think we have much margin here, pardon the pun, right. for another de-risking event mm. or another big margin call. With the reasons I've discussed, you know, a lack of unencumbered collateral to whiz around the system and make it all work, I worry about that. Um, you know, things are still a bit tight under the surface. I don't mean secondary market illiquidity, that speaks for itself. I just mean things are a bit tight under the surface. I think both sell and buy side balance sheets are more constrained than people understand. And most of all, I think the ability of central bankers to respond to any of this is extremely curtailed because inflation's too high. Right. No, and it's a tricky one. Fine. So look, for me, blind spot means more of the same. And fundamental misunderstanding of how a financial system works doesn't help. And who do you think needs, who do you think has like the worst understanding at the moment in the sector? I mean, where is, who needs to do the work as they say these days? Do you mean people who are exposed yeah. or people? Like, where, where, yeah, so not just where the blind spots are, but I guess it's the same question in some in Well, some I worry ways. that, I mean, think domestically, people with an overgeared buy-to-let portfolio, I wouldn't want to have much to do with that right now. Anything to do with UK housing is probably on the nose for a bit until we sort ourselves out. Although happily, I think market expectations of peak anchor really, are too high. I mean, 
So you think rates will come down and then... No, I don't. I think they will plateau. And, okay. But we're not plateauing yet. If we can get to but some kind of... But do you really mm, think mortgages are affordable at the current rates? Oh, no, no, I no, don't. No. I've, seen, I've seen that stuff that Neil Hudson does, which is very good, the residential strategist. Yeah. Um, comparing current mortgage rates with some gentle assumptions to yeah. where mortgage rates got to 20 years ago. You know, we say, oh yeah, blah, blah, blah. Let's look at this chart. Mortgage rates are only up a little bit. Oh, mum and dad bought their house with mortgage rates at 15%. Completely misses the point, right? You've got to scale it for disposable income and everything else. So I, think, I think it's a difficult time, but obviously that's the first place to look. Thank you. Thank you very much. Oh, this is great. So that after that little interruption, yes. But you, you, I see the souffle was nice. My souffle disappeared mm. fast. It's very good. Oh, it's got ice cream as well. Oh yeah, it. yeah, it's very good. Mango or something. Mm. Um, very so, tasty. We talked about blind spots. Oh yeah. But I wanted to finish on the housing situation. Well, it's bad, isn't it? Mm. I mean, it's hard. And that's what I think. And one needs to tread very, very gently on it because, mm, unsurprisingly, yeah. people people have felt compelled to borrow a lot of money. In fact, you know, help to buy schemes have encouraged people to take on a lot of leverage. Yeah, because otherwise it was unaffordable. And, and the difficult thing for this country, perhaps the unavoidable thing, is that for reasons of credibility and high inflation, bank rate has to go up which mean mortgage rates have to go up. And the philosophical question for me mm. is that I really don't think that any of these Western countries can hope to deal with their inflation problem no unless they cause something that feels a bit like a recession or at least a very abrupt slowdown. And I, I think, don't think I th it's even a recession. I mean, I don't know any friends of mine mm. who aren't going to be massively, mm. like barely able to afford Mm. when they re-rate, like when they restructure their... Mm. I mean, some of them can't even do it now. Mm. You have to wait till next year. Mm. I mean, it's That's absolutely... Like, we're talking about people's mortgages going up two, three times. Yeah. So they're repayments as opposed to their notional, yeah. but I know well, what you yeah. mean, yeah, yeah. I yeah. mean, it's their, yeah. but that's all that matters yeah. as far as uh, No, no, of course it is. It's essentially a question of affordability and it's a very awkward situation for any household to be in. It's not a fun conversation, but I'm afraid it's one that many, many households in this country are going to have to confront in the months ahead and many. on top of an energy crisis. And I think it's going to, it's going to be... Let's turn it around a bit. It's going to be a very stern test of resilience yet again. And I look at the proud history of this country and it does, tends to, yeah. through history, do resilience pretty well. I don't just mean all the stiff upper lip nonsense. I mean that generally this country does resilience pretty well, but it's going to require an awful lot of resilience and that in turn requires leadership. That requires leadership and look, it's... I know this will sound horribly crass, but it's on, on my mind a lot. Is that we, this summer, well, last month, we lost a great woman mm. in Her Majesty the Queen, and she was a titanic yes, figure. I, I mean, agree. I think as an example to all of us of faith-driven service, selflessness, um, reticence and grace. I mean, how lucky we were to have that example. But look, at the risk of being a bit prosaic, she was the world's ultimate low-vol trade, <laughs> right? Yes. She was constant. She rarely mucked up. You knew exactly what you were going to get you from You knew that. exactly what you are going to get. Reliable, predictable. Yep. Dare I say investable. A few spikes in implied vol around <laughs> Diana in 97, right? But you knew it Mainly, would come back. Mainly the derivatives. Though. And then, isn't it strange how life works? You have this 
absolute bedrock of stability and constancy. And she goes, and, and then we're straight into this. Into craziness. Right. And um, and I, you know, it's a, I, I think about her a yeah, lot. But, that but I also think sovereign about sovereign risk, doesn't it? It's I also think about sovereign risk. who's going to be the person who's going to go on TV like she did in the depths of the pandemic and just quietly say we will meet again, as if to say to UK households who are going through an energy shock, a mortgage shock. I hope not a job shot. Who's going to be the person who can say, it's going to be okay. You know, he might have to try. Someone needs to be like that to reassure people because they're certainly not going to get it on their social media. We need someone to say, look, it's going to be okay. We're working on it. And, and we're, we're lacking that person at the moment, but they may yet emerge. But that sort of stuff manifests when the um, system is not trusted. Of course and it does. those sort of rumours, and yeah. like that is. That is but as you turn it around, why is the system not trusted? Because by and large, it's run by self-indulgent yeah. group-thinking clouds. It's a new nomenclatura, right? so, so to we, speak. Ah, it was one of Dear Bernard's favourite phrases when he was thinking, writing about Europe, Bernard Connolly, and he's right. But there's one thing that may surprise you that I commend Biden on. And I commend Biden and the Washington security apparatus on the absolute hardball game they're playing against Beijing. It's fantastic. Mm -hmm. It's so consistent. They've taken it up quietly several notches beyond Trump. They've been building coalitions. It looks pretty nasty. They're going after chips. There's a, a book I read this summer called The Black Door, Number 10, and the Secret uh -huh. Intelligence Operations going back a century. And it's, it's, it's a reminder that there's stuff happening all day, every day around the world that we never hear about, yeah. that we're involved in. Um, and it's not just stopping the boats, the drug boats in the Gulf yeah. or anything like that. There's stuff that our intelligence folk and our defence folk are doing every day that we shouldn't know about, we don't know about, but it's hugely impressive. So number 10, The Black Door. Good, <laughs> good old thick book, but it's really, really, really I'll have good. i to check it out. Yeah, yeah. But just going back to what you were saying, um, I guess, well, yeah, obviously, coffee. it is a nice coffee. Because yeah. I, do, I don't like it when it's too bitter, and that's just right. Um, yeah. The... You know, obviously China is going to be on the radar, but do you think, I mean, we haven't touched on it, maybe we shouldn't, maybe it's too big a topic, yeah. but like in terms of what's going on with Russia, like, yeah. do you, how paradigm shifting is it, in your opinion? Oh, I think it's paradigm shifting for Vladimir Putin, but I have a very, very difficult time believing nearly everything I read about Zelensky. Mm -hmm. There's something about all of this that makes no sense. What kind of world are we in where Zelensky and his wife are doing a photo shoot with Annie Leibovitz for Vogue? Very weird, What no? the freaking heck is that? Mate, I thought you were in a war for life and death, but we're going to send Annie over there to take some photos of you too. Okay, we're all backing you. And by the way, I think it's paradigm shifting for Putin. I'll just say, though, that if Putin's getting smashed, why are we all still fighting nine months on? But also, is it, is it, like, how does it end? Because even, I mean, we, we don't want to go to politics, but from no. a liquidity standpoint, and just, you know, I was at, yeah. I can't really say where, no, but no. I was no. saying, you know, there's this focus on interoperability. We're going to this world of CBDCs and oh, yeah, all that stuff. Oh, and, yeah, yeah. You know, yeah. I don't see how you can have global interoperability if, like, Russia is just not in May the I system. say this is, you're on something very important here. And I'd, I'd put it in the folder of slobalisation. Now, some people call it 
deglobalization. It's like, well, when you think about the practical side mm. of deglobalization in the context of decades of mm. offshoring, lowest cost production, tax breaks, you, you just can't unwind that. In Not a without year. severe detrimental well, effects. But and well. Of course, people are seeking to do that right now. Mm -hmm. The onshoring and manufacturing in the United States is a wonderfully good news story. Mm -hmm. It's happening. Yeah. It's slower moving, but it's happening and it's real. It creates jobs. It's investing in the supply side of the US economy, Biden or not, good. A lot of it is private sector because there's no choice. You know, this CHIPS Act and everything else could be absolutely transformative for the supply side of the United States. And even though it's got a very silly name, the Inflation Reduction Act, <laughs> because they got rid of Build Back Better. Now, yeah. this is important. Oh, interesting. I didn't know that that's what it replaced. That's very, very important. Okay, I didn't know that. And it's why the Fed is so hawkish. They have full political cover, just as long as they don't mess it up, to fight inflation. Uh -huh. Very important so signal that markets missed. They're they're effectively resupplying, they're restructuring to, to create homegrown supply. Yeah. But the point is that these, there's these, the here and now, what are Gilt's doing, what's Sterling doing, who's the Chancellor this week, <laughs> right? Uh -huh. um, that's all the here and now. But there's these slower moving things that have now reversed. So I think you're right. When I think of the consequences, I think of, you know, some people call it deglobalization, I call it slobalization. Because if you and I were running a large global manufacturing firm, mm. uh, say an Apple, well then our marginal dollar of um, manufacturing capex ain't going to China, it's going to India or somewhere, or it's going onshore. It's the same for all of them, right? It takes time, because you can't just replicate Taiwan Semiconductor in no. Texas. No. In fact, you probably can't replicate Taiwan Semiconductor full stop. All these things. Here's something that interested me this summer, and I completely missed it until a friend, well, i just say he has an intelligence background. He said, have you seen the defense deal that South Korea signed with Poland? Mm-hmm. And I hadn't five billion dollars. What just happened there? Yeah. This, these are important things. South Korea is like fantastic. We demonstrated we're a serious player in defence. Boom. Poland's like, well, we can't trust our European partners. Where's all the stuff that this Schultz promised to send me? Still haven't got it. Well, I can't rely on that bum. I'm going to go out there and get my stuff. There's big, big things Poland's happening. Poland's got um, huge investments in nuclear coming as well. There you go. Very savvy. Very um, savvy. Nuclear, not just, I suspect, not just of the electricity generating variety. As you know so well, <laughs> as you know so well, there are a lot of bedwetters in the West who will look at a map of Poland and say, oh, uh -huh, uh -huh. and then you think about the way the world's going and you think to yourself, actually, why am I not investing there? Seriously. Yeah. And if the current or future UK Prime Minister is intelligent. One of the first things he or she would do is to sit down with Polish leaders and work out how we can build relationships together. Because I think that's going to be geostrategically marvellous. Now I'm speculating, but I'm getting away from your point. What will change out of this? I'd say lots of things. I think the CBDC thing, as much as you and I have been following it and tracking it, I'm not sure it's important. Oh, interesting. I think it's a giant distraction. Um, I may yet be wrong. I am wary of those crypto evangelists who say CBDC is proof of concept for digital coins. I would say it's the exact opposite. No, it's definitely not. I'd say it's a huge threat. Um, but you know, all of that will get washed out in time. So I'm watching these shifts, but then again, some of them are bad, some of them are difficult, 
all of them are expensive. Yeah. We've moved away from this profit-optimising world, this just-in-time world where everything is optimised to full, including, frankly, investment portfolios, collateral margin. All of it's optimised. Yeah. All of it, because that's the incentive. We're moving away from that to a world that's just, and I've been using this, as you know, for, for oh gosh, I'd say two and a half years now. We're moving away from just-in-time to just-in-case. Yeah, yeah. And that's okay. Yeah, and, and that's... It's just different. But that emulates, you know, that's what I've always said is that we, after the 2008 crisis, I mean, it's a nice way to wrap this up, is yeah. we we went to, we created capital buffers again, right, in the banking that's system. Right. Banking, banking yeah. system was operating mega just in time, but then mm. we recapitalized it and we buffered yep. it up. Yep. But we didn't do the same thing to the real economy. And so the two were... And we didn't do the same thing for the buy side, full stop. All the risk is down yeah. there. Well, sorry, that's not true, but so much of the risk that... 15 years ago was in the banks and on balance sheets is now on the buy side and I do wonder whether the buy side is fully equipped to deal with it. And I don't think aware of that because I did ask them that question. Well a fund manager can't run a liquidity buffer like a bank, although they should think like that, right? Because if I'm a fund manager... They were like, oh no, no, that's not us. No, well especially the people you're on your panel yeah. were would, would not, you know, but that's another conversation. But, um, but you know, that's... You know, it's just different. It's different, yeah. it's changing, and we're in the process of uncovering where the risks are, yeah. as was always going to happen yeah. if inflation picked up for any reason, which meant that realised interest rate volatility would go up, which means that things would become more liquid, which means that things have to derate, and which mean, would also mean that policy uncertainty went up, etc. Yeah. And we're uncovering that. Now, it's a difficult process to manage, but we might yet muddle through. I don't know. I'm certain, look, let's think practically domestically. This is an amazing, unexpected shakedown of all sorts of sterling assets, some of which are absolute no-brainer buys. And that's okay. And we, to, to finish in, in practical terms, now what I've been trying to say to my clients for a long time now is we're back to a world where you value an asset on its merits and you wait. Yeah. Gosh. That's what it used to be like. You are not building a portfolio predicated on what a central bank tells you to do, which we had to do the last 15 years. If a central bank bails you out and eventually re-rates your portfolio, happy days. But we're going back to that world. You understand an asset, you value it on its merits, you buy it, and you hold, and you, it. And you hold it, and that's okay. But a lot of people may not like it, but that's fine. It's a transition, so lots more to go though. That, I mean, we only just scratched the surface, as always, but I think that was fascinating, and um, I'm glad we had some liquidity <laughs> at the table, at the very least. Bill's just arrived. Just on behalf of all your many fans out there, we appreciate <laughs> you. No, seriously, you need to know this, and you're not to edit this out. We appreciate you because there were few people in journalism who had the tenacity through and after the financial crisis to go after stuff that mattered. And a lot of people didn't want to talk about it, and you did. And you had a really important platform, and you did it in a particular way. Okay. And you know, like all of us, you went down a few rabbit holes, but it's just the highest quality stuff. So keep at it, it's awesome. Thank you very much, James. Thank you, Izzy. That was Leaked Lunch with Isabella Kaminska, brought to you in association with Hire, the pseudonymous whistleblowing app. For more on what happens when finance and media intersect with reality, check out The Blind Spot at www the-blindspot.com